minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nachum Siegel. Welcome to a Thursday here at your Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program. Uh, it's a uh, Thursday day. Um, what is today? The seventh? Seventh day of our nine days format, or ten days, actually, because we're observing Tisha B'Av on the tenth of Av this year. And I uh, thank you for tuning in our uh, Nine days format continues. Rabbi Burl Wine is um, one of our great sources of material for the nine days format. He'll continue with the series on streets of Jerusalem going through the Geula neighborhood, Meisharim, in just a few minutes here at JM and the AM. Information about his lectures, 1 800 499 WEIN or com. Rabbi WEIN.com. We'll uh, go through some of the um, uh, different things happening for Tisha B'Av as we uh, broadcast here on a Thursday morning. We'll talk about some of the events that are happening and things that are going on in general coinciding with the day. And um, Rabbi Steve Weil is going to join us from the OU later on. The OU, of course, as is a tradition, will have an amazing webcast of Kinos from both Florida and Israel going on with Rabbi Weil and Rabbi Weinrib uh, through the day on Tisha B'Av. An amazing way to connect and to uh, learn a great deal about what it is that we are doing on Tisha B'Av and why. So we'll talk about that coming up here at JM in the AM. And uh, our nine days format for us here at JM in the AM will end tomorrow. Malcolm Holmline will join us for the weekly update. And uh, we will conduct a close-to-normal Friday program, and that will do it. Monday, we are on a regular schedule. Sunday, Tisha B'Av Matis will be on between 7 and 9 a.m. Eastern Time with a JM Sunday edition for Tisha B'Av. And uh, we hope that everybody will take advantage of that and to tune in early Sunday morning if you have an opportunity. Eight minutes after 6 o'clock, it's JM in the AM with uh, 80 degrees here in Jersey City. And um, this heat index today is going to feel uh, over 100 degrees as we go into the low 90s. And we have uh, pretty high humidity. It's going to feel like the nine days. (laughs) Many people conjecture or theorize that during the nine days there's always a heat wave. I guess this year would prove that theory to be correct. Rabbi Beryl Wine, Streets of Jerusalem, the neighborhood of Geula and Meisharim. You're listening to JM in the AM. Uh, tonight's lecture concerns itself with the uh, heart of 
the Haredi neighborhoods in Yerushalayim. And uh, I'm going to uh, talk a little about each neighborhood, not only about the streets, uh, but the history of the neighborhood and how it was developed. And I think what is very interesting to note and what should be noted is that uh, many, if not most, of these neighborhoods began long before the Zionist movement. Uh, they were uh, almost all built with private money, money donated by Jews uh, from throughout the world, and that the uh, purpose, the sole purpose of uh, the building of these neighborhoods was the concept of Yishuv Eretz Yisrael, of settling the land of Israel and certainly the city of Jerusalem with Jews. And uh, therefore, uh, there is a special character, a special history uh, to each one of these neighborhoods. And uh, in our time, all the neighborhoods have blended together. So when we talk about Gula, we talk about a big neighborhood. But reality, as we'll see, Gula was a very small neighborhood on which other surrounding neighborhoods eventually attach themselves. And the same will be true of Mayor Shorim. Uh, they all began as small, isolated settlements, if we can use that word today, uh, small, isolated settlements outside the walls of the old city, and it was very dangerous to live there uh, because they were under constant Arab attack, we uh, think that somehow our problems began in uh, September 2000 or in uh, 1993 or 1988. Uh, the uh, intifada that has been waged against us uh, has been with us from the beginning of Jewish settlement in 1803 here in Yerushalayim. And it has, uh, it waxes and wanes. It, uh, Sometimes is stronger, God forbid, and sometimes weaker, but it has never abated. It's never disappeared. And therefore, uh, a lot of the fantasies, and I, I don't want to discuss uh, political matters here, but a lot of the fantasies that are spelled out, if only, you know, if only uh, this or oh, if only that, really evaporate into thin air when you realize uh, that... Uh, even when the Jews were a minority here, and even when there was no Jewish government, and even when the Muslims, the Turks, controlled the country, uh, it apparently made no difference. Now, what that augurs for the future, I will leave to uh, Secretary Powell, but uh, I think it's important uh, that we realize this. The Jewish settlement in the old city which began, I mentioned, in 1803, and then uh, expanded. It really began in the late 1700s, but in 1803 there was already a sizable crowd. In 1830, Reb Shmuel Salant came to settle, and uh, Jews from uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Talmidim Nechsam Sofer came, uh, disciples of uh, Chabad came, uh, Rebbe's uh, from Eastern Europe sent the uh, Chsidim and the Talmidim of the Gaon of Vilna, the Misnagdim, the Prushim. was a very uh, mixed community. And uh, one of the uh, 
interesting points about that community was uh, that they did not really import with them to Israel uh, the disputes that were going on in the exile. And the reason for that was because of the pressure from the Arabs. They had no choice but to be unified and to deal as one. There was a, also a very strong undercurrent of tension between the Sephardic community and the Ashkenazi community in Jerusalem. And that tension, uh, the Sephardim were officially recognized as a community by the Turkish authorities. Uh, the Sephardic rabbi was uh, the Chacham Bashi. He had official rank and recognition. The Ashkenazim, as far as the Turks were concerned, didn't exist. And therefore, it was a struggle for the Ashkenazim, uh, a struggle to attempt to uh, create their own shechita, uh, even to build their synagogues. The famous uh, Nissen Beck synagogue, uh, uh, in, uh, of which only the uh, arch is left today in the old city. Uh, so uh, that was begun uh, by uh, a, an Austrian Jew, Nissen Beck, and uh, the Turks stopped it many times. They couldn't complete it at the Pharisee-owned synagogue. They couldn't complete it. The Turks stopped it for various reasons, mainly extortion. Uh, but sad to say, also, uh, there were Jews who were not interested in seeing that the synagogue uh, be completed because it would be the most magnificent structure in the old city, as it was, and it would dwarf other things. Uh, people are very funny. It's not, it's not humorous, but they're funny. And uh, eventually the Emperor Franz Josef, uh, the Austrian Emperor himself, took a hand in the matter. And he uh, forced the Turkish uh, uh, authorities to allow the synagogue to be finished. Uh, because Nissenbeck was an Austrian subject. And... Uh, the Austrian consul here in Jerusalem uh, interceded very strongly and in fact the Emperor Franz Josef gave the money uh, to uh, finish the roof and the, and the great dome on top of the synagogue. And uh, so the, uh, the Jewish uh, quarter, but the Jews didn't only live in the Jewish quarter, that was all under Britain that these names came the Jews lived in the Christian quarter, the Jews lived in the Muslim quarter, they certainly lived in the Jewish quarter near the Kotel. The Jews lived throughout the old city. And you can see even today in many streets in the old city in the uh, Christian and Muslim quarters, buildings that have on the doorposts uh, niches that were carved out that once held mezuzot. And now all of this ended when the Jews were driven from the old city in uh, 1947 and 48. But uh, the world uh, has a short memory and so do Jews. So there was a push because of the large uh, number of Jews and the constant immigration. It wasn't uh, immigration in terms of tens of thousands, but hundreds of Jews came every year. And uh, I remember my mother, a blessed memory, telling me uh, my grandfather uh, came. Uh, he, he was when the Yeshiva in Valozhin closed in 1892. 
So then uh, my grandfather accompanied the Nitziv uh, to Warsaw. The Nitziv was going to come to Eretz Yisrael. And in 1893, the Nitziv unfortunately suffered a stroke and died in Warsaw. And after the death of the Nitziv, my grandfather, together with other uh, students of the yeshiva, continued their journey and they came here. Uh, my mother, Alei Shalom, was born in Botemachsen, the old city. And uh, then there's a whole story how we got to America, and then there's a whole story how we got back here. Our net worth didn't change much in a century, but, uh, but we're here. And uh, starting in the 1860s, 1870s, neighborhoods outside of the old city were developed. Now, it's, when you look at Mayor Shoreham today, when you look at Gula, it's one contiguous mass of houses, densely populated. But that's not how it started. It started as small little outposts, literally, uh, in which many of the people were afraid to sleep there overnight. They went back within the walls of the old city to sleep because of the fear of Arab marauders. So in 1874, there's a family, very famous family, and it's associated with our synagogue, Rivlin. Rivlin is a contraction of the uh, name, uh, his mother, the original Rivlin, his mother's name was Riva. And so he was Rivel's. He was uh, Rivel, Rivel's son. And from that came the name Rivlin. And uh, they were from the original Prushim, from the original Talmudim Nagolna Vilna, who came here in the beginning of the 19th century. And uh, the uh, Rivlin family, uh, there are like six, eight famous families that really helped build Jerusalem. And the Rivlin family is one of them. Uh, so the first Rivlin that came here was Binyamin Rivlin. And then his son, Yosef Rivlin, uh, bought uh, with money that uh, was donated uh, one, uh, a lot uh, to build 100 houses outside the walls of Jerusalem. And the money that was given was 500 British pounds sterling which uh, today uh, isn't an exorbitant something that'll pay for the cab from Heathrow to London, but, but the, uh, in, in 1874 it was a lot of money. Uh, the average English uh, uh, worker didn't make 100 pounds a year. And Rivlin bought this piece of land, and he had it subdivided for 100 houses. And that's why they called it Maya Shore. It was going to be 100 lots, 100 houses. But because they called it Maya Shorim, they waited to make the dedication of the, or the groundbreaking rather, until the Parsha of Toldot, which we read last week. And it says there, regarding our father Yitzchok, Right, the the Lord blessed him, and from the crop there arose meoshorim, a hundred times more than the estimate that was involved. So, because, so in order to uh, link it to its biblical roots, and not just say that it was called meoshorim because they had a hundred lots, 
So they waited. Uh, the, the date was in uh, November 1874, and then uh, it became the neighborhood of Meishorim. Eventually, uh, on the 100 lots, they built 140 houses, which is uh, the Jewish way of doing things. And since uh, there was no... Uh, they did something very, very clever... Uh, since they had English money to buy, they raised money in England, and they had British pounds sterling. So what they did is they, instead of having the title passed to Rivlin or to any other Eastern European Jerusalem Jew, the title was given to an English Jew who was a subject of Queen Victoria. And therefore the British consul in Jerusalem intervened to make certain that the Turks would not prevent uh, the building and the Englishmen uh, looked the other way and the hundred houses became 140. Now it was an interesting thing that uh, at the end of the 19th century the Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Empire was extremely weak. It was called the sick man of Europe. And the First World War would be torn asunder. And it lost all of its territory and retained only Turkey. And then it became a modern country. But the Ottoman Empire had existed for 500 years. And that controlled the entire Middle East. And uh, in order to get around the Turks and around the Muslims, uh, the Russian Jews here came under the protection of the Russian consulate. And we have the Russian compound, uh, so the Russian church was built here, and the Russian the Tsar had a foot in here. And we'll talk next week, God willing, about the German colony. The Kaiser had his foot in here. The English were here, as they always are. And the uh, Austrians were here. And the, uh, so, and the French were here. So every European colonial power and empire was represented in Jerusalem. And the Jews, in order to get out from under the Turks, put themselves under the protection of the respective consulate of the country that they came from. So, for instance, the Russian, Lithuanian, and Polish Jews, who if they would have been in Europe, would have been subject to the pogroms of the Tsar, when they were here, were subject to the protection of the Tsar, who made certain that their rights were protected, not because he cared for the Jews, but because he was sticking it to the Ottoman Empire. And the same thing was true of the British, and the same thing was true of all of the other uh, colonial empires that were here. So uh, again, the strange facts of history. So Meishorim began. And uh, when it began, uh, about three weeks afterwards, one of the members of the neighborhood, Gedalia Scheinbaum, who was 38 years old, was killed in an Arab riot against Mayor Shorin. So he's the first casualty, uh, so to speak. And we're talking 1874, 1875. Now, as Mayor Shorin developed, uh, how did they uh, originally... Uh, they drew lots as to who had the right to live there. 
and the people who won the, uh, the lottery uh, were the ones that moved. Uh, people who won the lottery and didn't want to move attempted to sell their rights to others. And so then we have uh, uh, the rabbis stepped in and they said we did not, uh, we didn't approve, so to speak, of this real estate venture as a speculation that people should make money. And therefore, if you don't want to live there, then it reverts back uh, to the VOD, so to speak, to the committee, and uh, we'll draw lots again uh, as to who has the right to live there. Uh, the neighborhood uh, grew. Now, as you see it today, it's enormously dense. Uh, it looks like a fortress, which it was. It had very narrow streets. Part of the reason they had narrow streets is so that Arab mobs couldn't come. If you have a narrow street, you have only room for six, eight people across. On Rehov Meyashori, maybe you have room for three people in the, in the Egged bust. But otherwise, there's no room. Now, they did that on purpose because of the fact that that was a defensive measure. It was a defensive measure because if they had wide, broad avenues, uh, you know, they were afraid of the Arab mobs. Uh, the first 15 years in Meyashorim, there were no markets. They had to go buy all of their food and other necessities back in the old city. And uh, it's a walk. And it's not necessarily a pleasant walk because it had danger involved also. I'm trying to point out to you that the, literally the pioneering spirit of the people who began the community. And eventually... When all 140 houses were built, uh, there was enough economic activity to warrant that Meoshorim should have its own markets. And then the, the, and the markets usually were uh, owned and operated by Arabs, who brought in agricultural products and all sorts of other products. And uh, the, uh, the uh, neighborhood developed, and it developed very strongly. I will talk to you in a little while, God willing, about the names of the streets in Meyashorim. But Meyashorim was this first outpost. Now, it's interesting that Meyashorim had its characteristic posters on the wall from the beginning. And here's a poster on the wall that says, you're not allowed to sell your house to someone who doesn't meet the standards of Meyashorim that will lower the uh, holiness of the place. So there's always been a tension, and this poster is from 1888, I think. So it's not, you know, again, it didn't happen today. All the signs, all the posters, all the, the tension uh, that exists, uh, that, was, uh, that was always part of it. Next to Meyashorim, not far, uh, another outpost began in 1875. Uh, today it's absorbed, the Meyashorim Gula, that whole thing, it's all absorbed, it all runs one into another. But then they were all separate little places. And this place was called Evan Yisrael. It was called Evan Yisrael because the gematria, the numerical value of the word Evan is 53. Aleph is 1, Bez is 2, is 3, and Nun is 50. So it's 53, and there were 53 lots. So that's why they called it Evan Yisrael. Of course, on the 53 lots, more than 53 houses were built. But originally, that's why it was. 
And this, uh, uh, if uh, Mayor Shorim was started by the Rivlins, by the Prushim, uh, this was started by the Talmudim, the Chsam Sofer, the Ksav Sofer, uh, by the Hungarian, Czechoslovakian element of, the, uh, of Yerushalayim. And, uh, but here also, the two main uh, uh, people who pushed it was a, were again Rabbi Yosef Rivlin and the famous Yellen family, Yoshua Yellen. So there's Yoshua Yellen, David Yellen, they all have streets named after them. And they, just like Rivlin was a famous uh, family that pushed for the development, so too was the Yellen family. We're also going to see that Rabbi Yael Mesha Solomon, who also has a street named after him, he also was one of the original founders of all of these new neighborhoods and insisted uh, uh, that uh, Jewish settlement should continue. Uh, this was paid for in French money. Now you have to realize that uh, uh, French money, English money, German money was money. Whereas Turkish money, you know, was, uh, was frowned upon. And because of that, most of the purchases were made in foreign money, foreign exchange, which itself was illegal, because you weren't allowed to have foreign money. So therefore, they always had to find a citizen of that country, and he would say that it was his money, and he was buying it, and it went in his name, and the consulate of that country would protect that the deal would go through. So you'll see what Jews went through in order to purchase and develop uh, Yerushalayim and Eretz Israel. So they found a French Jew. And because they found the French Jew, uh, they were able to convert their money into French money. And uh, this neighborhood... Uh, uh, was uh, was uh, established. In the lottery for the original 53 lots, one of the winners was the rabbi, Reb Shmuel Salant, which itself is miraculous because no rabbi ever wins in a lottery. <laughs> but the great Reb Shmuel Salant was one of those who won in the lottery and had the right to move. But he never left the old city. He never left the old city. He lived for 70 years in the same, uh, what we could call a hovel, uh, just uh, a room and a half, and uh, without much convenience. But he was the uh, Shmuel Salant. So again, the Salant family, the Tukachinskis, etc., that's another family uh, that uh, created uh, the Jewish community here in Jerusalem and saw to it that it would expand and grow. But he, uh, until his death in 1909, he remained in the old city. He would not move from the old city to outside the city because of the fact that uh, I imagine they felt that the old city was holier. Also because of the fact of his age and other things that probably was not conducive for him to move. So now you have two neighborhoods, but there's space in between them. And the space in between them uh, is always dangerous. Empty land uh, becomes no man's land. 
And here, for the first time, you start to have a strong Arab objection uh, to Jewish purchases of uh, land, even though the sellers of the land were always Arabs, and who profited greatly and always sold at uh, greater than market price. In fact, it's not greater than market price. Nobody would buy. I mean, Jerusalem was a deserted, dirty city. You have to read Mark Twain was here in the 1890s. You have to read his description of Jerusalem uh, as uh, being an awful backwater full of beggars, dirt, and flies. So who wanted to buy here? But, again, uh, it's not so much that the Arabs wanted it as the fact that they didn't want the Jews to have it. So in 1883, uh, there enters into the picture... Uh, Sir Moses Montefiore. Now, he had come to Jerusalem twice, and uh, you mean Moshe, and uh, Neve Shananim, and the windmill, all of that were results of his visit here. But in 1883, on the no man's land between uh, uh, Meir Shorim and Evan Yisrael, uh, two new uh, neighborhoods were built, Maskeret Moshe, and Ohel Moshe. Now the Jews figured out, uh, we discussed it last week when I discussed Kiryat Moshe, that if you named it after him, you had a good chance that he would finance it. And therefore, uh, they named uh, Maskeret Moshe, and the people who uh, founded it were again Rabbi Yosef Rivlin, and the son of Rabbi Shmuel Salant, Rabbi Yomin Benish Salant, Rebiel Mesha Solomon, these were the Jews that founded the neighborhood. And again, there, there was a lottery to bring people in, and the, uh, the, uh, it, it ended up that the houses were about, the apartments were about 30 square meters, which to us is tiny. But again, uh, you have to see the standards of the time and the standards of what Jews lived in in Europe, uh, so that was considered to be uh, uh, acceptable. The representative of uh, Montefiore here in Jerusalem was a famous Jew, Yechiel Michel Pinus, who was a, uh, a, a Talmud Chochem, but he was a Moscow, he was modern. I mean, in today's world, he'd be right, there, he'd be right of right. But, uh, I mean, you got to see a picture of him with the big yamlake, with the beard, with the whole, with the payas, the whole thing. But he was a Moscow, right? In Jerusalem, he was on the left then. And, uh, he, in fact, he dared say that they should make a different kind of cheder in Yerushalayim. The cheder achadash, the new cheder, which would uh, somehow teach uh, mathematics and geography. And it was a, so, and again, that tension, when the, which still exists today... Uh, was present then. And he was the apotropos, he was the trustee for uh, Montefiore. And he is the one, therefore, uh, that channeled the money to build these two neighborhoods in 1883. When they saw that they got money for uh, uh, Mascaret Moshe and O.L. Moshe, so then they decided that they would make a bigger neighborhood called Zichron Moshe, which still exists today. It still is a name. It, uh, it adjoins Gula. And that Montefiore financed completely, even though that Moshe 
is named after a different Moshe. After a rabbi uh, from Vitebsk. Uh, and, uh, but, uh, you know, they, so the Jews there said, Mimoshe ad Moshe lokom kemoshe, right? That it's all the same Moshe as long as Montefiore is paying the bill. What's the difference, you know, which Moshe it's named after? And uh, so you had this compound of Moshe neighborhoods, uh, O.L. Moshe, Maskeret Moshe, Zichron Moshe, these neighborhoods and now surrounded Mayor Shorin. And uh, so now you had some sort of contiguity, some sort of con con connection between the Jewish neighborhoods, and therefore they relied less and less on uh, the Jews in the old city uh, for any supplies or even for any uh, help whatsoever. In 1886, the neighborhood of Beis Yisrael was founded. Uh, Beis Yisrael today is where the Mir Yeshiva is. It's, uh, again, old, strong bastion. Now, this was founded by two rabbis, Reb Zalman Baharan. One of, again, the Baharan family was a famous family in building Yerushalayim, and there are, there's a street after him. And Reb Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld, who came from Czechoslovakia, and, uh, set, and he would later be the, uh, the first uh, uh, chief rabbi, quote-unquote, of the Eda Haredis, uh, of the uh, of the of those who dissented from uh, Rav Cook and from the uh, official chief rabbinate, but they were the ones that founded this neighborhood in Beis Israel, and uh, they uh, were able to uh, obtain funds from uh, Jews in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and again it was built under the protection of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. This is the end of side one. Please. J.M. and the A.M. halfway through our uh, lecture regarding uh, the streets of Geula and Meishorim uh, from a series entitled The Streets of Jerusalem by Beryl Wine here in a nine, door, nine days format Thursday at J.M. and the A.M. It's Thursday, August the 11th, the 7th of Menachem Av. We'll observe Tisha B'Av this coming Sunday, Saturday night and Sunday, the 10th of Av, actually. We'll go through some of the events that are going on uh, on Tisha B'Av. Uh, for you as we go through uh, today's program. Rabbi Steve Weil is going to be joining us. OU and OU.org presents their Kinnis Observance uh, and presentation this coming Sunday. We'll explain how that works. You can go to OU.org for information. Um, and we'll have all that information uh, for you coming up here on a nine days format Thursday. 80 degrees, 83% humidity, winds are west at 6 miles an hour. Afternoon thunderstorms today with a high temperature of 91.1. Thunderstorms late tonight with a low of 79, and tomorrow afternoon thunderstorms and a high of 94 degrees. You shall lime right now at 84, a lot at 97. Up in Guilford, New York, our friends at Camp Missouri are at 70 degrees, going up to 87. We're at 80 right now in Jersey City as we say good morning at JM and the AM. 20 minutes before 7 o'clock on this uh, Thursday morning. And um, a reminder that Matis will present a JM Sunday on the topic of uh, 
Tisha B'Av this coming Sunday between 7 and 9 a.m. We go back into our regular format Monday starting at 6 a.m. here at JM and the AM. And tomorrow, our regularly scheduled weekly update will take place. Malcolm Honline will join me at 7.40 Eastern Time tomorrow morning here at JM and the AM. Make sure to be tuned in from anywhere around the world with the NSN app and, of course, through all of our other avenues. Rabbi Beryl Wine, his lectures uh, series on streets of Jerusalem, speaking about Meir Sharim and Geula, information at 1-800-499-WEIN. All of his uh, series are available there, 1-800-499-WEIN. Together with Edward Bainish, uh, who was the president of Czechoslovakia uh, after the First World War, who came to Jerusalem to visit, and he came to visit Rabbi Yisav Chaim Zonenfeld because, so to speak, Rabbi Zonenfeld was the representative of the Czechs, uh, the Czech uh, department of uh, whoever was here uh, during the period before the First World War. It's interesting that that famous picture was cut in half so that Banish is not there anymore. And only Rabbi Yisav, that that's the famous picture of Yisav Chaim Zonenfeld uh, that's in printed in all the books and all the sforim, but half the picture is missing. Uh, Vanish is missing. Uh, there's a lot of... There's, I, I, I have in mind to give a lecture once on uh, doctored pictures in Jewish history, of which there are many. Some of them are hilarious. Some are not so funny. But uh, the, uh, the, the one that's funny uh, occurred not long ago. Uh, Rav Dushinsky, testified in front of the United Nations uh, Commission, the Partition Commission, in 1946 as to what to do with Eretz Yisrael. And uh, in the original picture, so there is a woman in the picture who's the court stenographer, who's taking the minutes of what uh, was being said, the minutes of the recording. That's the original picture. So it was published in, the Haredi, in one of the Haredi magazines, so they put a beard and a yarmulke on the woman. But, but they forgot that she was wearing a skirt. So in the second edition, they cut out the bottom completely, right? But uh, that's, uh, you know, that fixes it up. So, so pictures, uh, if anybody tells you pictures don't lie, they do lie. In 1885... Uh, Shari Moshe was built. Now, this was not Montefiore. This was Reb Moshe of Wittenberg. And he was a very, very wealthy Jew from Russia who didn't have any children. And he and his wife came here and, and he wanted to be memorialized because he had no family. And so he decided that he would build a neighborhood and name it after himself. Shari Moshe. The Shari Moshe still exists today. Again, it's absorbed into the greater Geula, Meir Shorim neighborhood. Wittenberg had a bank here, a private bank. He was a tremendous London. Uh, he was a very, very interesting Jew. He came here with half a million silver Russian rubles, which was uh, like a billion dollars. And he bought land, he was a, he was a Chabad Chosid. He bought land, he built the apartments himself, and he gave them away to the people. So that was the ultimate lottery. 
because then those that won not only had the right to live, they had the apartment, they had the, uh, the buildings themselves. And uh, first he built 20 uh, apartments, and uh, he then uh, built uh, afterwards another uh, 36 apartments. And he built the mikveh, and he built the shul, and he built the uh, yeshiva, he built the kolel. Uh, all of which uh, uh, were, uh, and he left a lot of money uh, to marry, uh, to pay for the weddings of poor girls in Yerushalayim. That fund still exists. So uh, he, uh, he was really a remarkable person. In 1891, the Bukharim Jews came, and across the street, right, it was, uh, became Rehovot Bukharim. So on, if you go up Rehov Strauss, Rehov Yechesko, so on the right side of the street is uh, Gula, and on the left side of the street is uh, the Bukharim. The Bukharim built a, a very, very fancy neighborhood. Uh, they were Jews from all of the Caucasian countries. It gathered together, and uh, it was at one time considered the premier neighborhood in Yerushalayim. When Sir Herbert Samuel was the British High Commissioner, he would come for Sukkot to the Sukkah of the Bukharan Jews, and they dressed him up in the Bukharan costume, and that was the Sukkah that he sat in because of the fact that it was considered to be the, the prime uh, place uh, the prime uh, uh, neighborhood. There were 120, uh, 120 apartments, 18 synagogues. So, uh, I mean, you'll figure it out yourself. <laughs> In 1891, uh, there was another neighborhood added on called Knesset Yisrael. And Knesset Yisrael was 160 apartments, and it was founded again by Rabbi Yosef Rivlin. So you have here uh, uh, an entire pattern of, uh, of neighborhoods being built, one on top of the other, and the neighborhoods were subsumed in the original neighborhoods, so that Mayor Shorin became enormous, so to speak, and uh, in 1923 is the first time that Geula is mentioned. In 1923, uh, two Jews uh, purchased 21,000 dunam uh, in the area of Geula, and they called it Geula because of the Posik, Bechol Eretz Achuzaschem Geula Titnu Loaretz. And so even though Geula was the later neighborhood, and even though in certain respects it was the smaller neighborhood, its name came to dominate the entire neighborhood. So that all of the other villages uh, now became part of Gula. One thing that's interesting is that there's a neighborhood stuck in the end of Gula called Nachlas Tzvi. It was built in 1890. That neighborhood was built by Baron Moritz de Hirsch. Now, Baron Hirsch, uh, had a, he was a very, very wealthy German Jew. He made a fortune in railroads. There were a number of great barons, Jewish barons, 
uh, Ginsburg, Horace uh, Ginsburg in Russia, and uh, the Hirsch uh, here, uh, <coughs> and uh, Rothschild, and these barons, uh, they came to solve the Jewish problem. So, uh, for instance, Edmund the Rothschild, the baron, uh, thought that the solution to the Jewish problem lay here in the land of Israel. Hirsch thought that the solution to the Jewish problem lay in taking Jews and scattering them all over the world in uh, farming colonies. And therefore he bought land in Argentina, in Chile, in North Dakota, in Vineland, New Jersey, uh, in the Tennessee-Mississippi border, uh, in Africa. All over the world he bought land. And he then appealed to the Russian Jews, because everybody felt that the Russian Jews were the problem. They all felt the German Jews were, oh, nothing was ever going to happen to them. And the French Jews and the Austrian Jews, everybody else was in good shape. Only the Russian Jews were, were the problem. So he said that we can move out a million Russian Jews to all of these colonies that he had all over the world. Now, a million never came. But about 100,000 Jews did leave Russia under his uh, encouragement and sponsorship. And therefore, uh, you still have a Jewish community in Vineland. Uh, the main synagogue in Memphis is called the Baron Hirsch Synagogue. Uh, there are uh, the original Jews who came to North and South Dakota came with the Baron Hirsch uh, uh, experiment. Uh, the uh, Jews in Argentina... But, uh, in spite of himself, he also built a neighborhood near Shalai. And it was in the, his uh, Hebrew name was Tzvi. And therefore, he, uh, the houses that he built uh, were called Nachlas Tzvi, part of the uh, uh, donation. So, uh, 30, he built the first 30 apartments. And the next 45 apartments were built by the uh, people who lived there themselves uh, as uh, part of their uh, expansion of the neighborhood. All right, we're almost done. We'll get into the streets in a minute. Uh, in 1905, uh, I mentioned this neighborhood, Zichron Moshe, which is also to the left of Gula. Uh, so Yellen, who had, I'm sorry, uh, David Yellen prevailed on uh, Yechiel Michal Pines, and they expanded the neighborhood. So they built another 140 homes. This is all before uh, the Zionist movement really began to work here, and all before uh, any sort of organized uh, activity. It was all done ad hoc. Jews did it themselves. After the British came here, there were two neighborhoods that were built. One was Neve Yisrael in 1929. This neighborhood was built in the middle of the era pogroms of 1929. And uh, it was a fascinating story. Uh, the Jews uh, got a hold of an Arab who was willing to sell them 135 dunam at the end of Gula. But he insisted, the Arab, that the deal be closed on Shabbos. So the Gemara says, there's a Gemara that says that for Yishev Eretz Yisrael, uh, even the Shabbos can be violated. It's an interesting Gemara. So they didn't know what to do. 
So they went to Rav Yisuf Chaim Zonenfeld. They asked him what to do. So Rav Yisuf Chaim Zonenfeld gave them the following aids, the following advice. He said to take the money and sew it into the dress of a little girl. And take the little girl and have her wear two dresses, one on top and then another dress on the bottom. And the dress on top is where the money should be. And that she should go on Shabbos with them. And they should tell the Arab, to, you know, to take the dread, the top dress off of her, and that's where his money was. And that's what they did. Then they were stuck, though, because of the fact that the Arab insisted that somebody should sign. And they didn't know what to do. And therefore, uh, what they did is uh, they... Uh, postponed that the, uh, he got the money already, but they postponed that next day they would come to sign. Next day was Erev Yontiv, and the Arab didn't show up. It was coming time for the end of Yontiv, uh, for Yontiv to come in. So they signed before with the hope that when the seller would come, the seller would also sign. And that's what happened, and that's how they got the land for Nevei Yisrael. And uh, eventually on it were built uh, homes for Jews. Finally, in 1930, the neighborhood Kerem Avraham was built, which is also uh, uh, part of Gula today. And the Rav of Kerem Avraham was the great Rabbi Tzvi Pesach Frank, who later was the Rav of Yerushalayim, the Avbezdin in Yerushalayim. And uh, it was built by Jews from London who gave the money and who allowed the, uh, uh, the uh, purchase to go through. So those are the neighborhoods. That's the history of Mayor Shorim and Gula, of that entire area uh, of how it was developed. So it wasn't developed with one master plan at one time, but rather it was developed piecemeal. And then it all ran together. That will explain to you why none of the streets are through streets. Like, if you want to cross, so uh, the street will run up to, let's say, Yecheskel, and then on the other side there either is no street, or the, the street on the other side is 100 yards north or south of where the other street is. And the reason is because this was built piecemeal, and there was no general plan to outline and to arrange, and that's also why the streets are so narrow, and not built for the traffic and crooked, etc., simply because of the fact that all of these neighborhoods were built individually. Uh, in the 1870s and 1880s, they certainly weren't built for automobiles, and, uh, but the neighborhoods are there. The names of the streets in May Shorim, first of all, they, we have the famous street, you know, which is King George, uh, named after King George V. After Yafo, it becomes Strauss. Now, who's Strauss? So there was a Jew by the name of Nathan Strauss, an American Jew. Now, there were three Strauss brothers, uh, all born in Germany, all of whom became millionaires. Uh, they founded Macy's uh, in department store, uh, Abraham and Strauss, the uh, A&S, the famous department store. Very, very wealthy, very assimilated, very reformed Jews. The oldest Strauss, Isidore Strauss, 
became a member of Congress. He was one of the first Jews ever elected to Congress. He was elected in the term of Grover Cleveland. And uh, he headed many institutions, but he didn't associate himself too much with the Jews. He and his wife were lost on the Titanic. The second one, Nathan Strauss, the second brother whom we're talking about, uh, lived in uh, Talbotton, Georgia. And uh, he uh, was a very talented person. Uh, when We will continue with the uh, saga of the Strauss family coming up here at JM in the AM. Rabbi Beryl Wine with an analysis of the streets of Jerusalem, now concentrating on the Geula and Meisharim neighborhoods. Uh, J.M. Nam at three minutes before seven o'clock. News from Israel is coming up, of course, and we will go through the events uh, for Tisha B'Av that you need to know about. A lot of things happening. Yesterday we spoke about Project Inspire. You can uh, search their website. Actually, you can search the uh, name Project Inspire and come up with their website and have their film, their brand new film, shown this Tish above in your neighborhood, or if you'd like, um, uh, you can go online and see it for yourself. Uh, Project Inspire will be presenting Charlie Harari live on our network and many others starting at 6.30 p.m. this coming Sunday on Tish above itself, the final couple of hours of Tish above starting at 6.30 Eastern Time. You'll be able to uh, gain from his uh, insights as the day comes to an end, a uh, project that has been unique to Project Inspire to utilize the last couple of hours of Tisha B'Av to inspire people and uh, keep the feeling of the day going even as the day comes to its conclusion. That's happening, of course, on a Sunday. Reminder that our very own programming will include JM Sunday with Matis Weingast on Tisha B'Av this coming Sunday morning starting at 7 a.m. Eastern Time on the stream at jmnam.org and, of course, on the NSN app. You'll have an opportunity to uh, tune in and feel the day of Tisha B'Av. Our friends at the OU and OU.org present a webcast of live kinos with both Rabbi Weil and Rabbi Weinrib. We'll have a chance to speak about this in the third hour this morning. You can go to OU.org for information about what they plan on doing Sunday. Again, that's OU.org for information. And uh, you could register for that and be part of the experience as they get to the um, they get to the heart of the matter of Tishabov in two locations, both Florida and Israel, and present Kinos as only they can. Rabbi Weil and Rabbi Weinrib will be doing that this coming Sunday. Again, OU.org for information. Go to OU.org. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope. Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial broadcasting live. From the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. Around the world on the web, jmnam.org and of course on the NSN app. Got golly Tsal in the background. Our news from Israel will be coming up uh, about an hour from now. Or by a while, we'll be visiting with us. We'll talk about the OU program for Tishabov. We do have events going on, including a Mincha service at the Isaiah Peace Wall. This coming Sunday at 2 p.m., bring your Talos and Tefillin. Weather might be a little bit of a factor, but uh, we hope everybody will come out 
and to be part of the Mincha service at the Isaiah Peace Wall this coming Sunday starting at 2 p.m. Uh, when uh, Tishabov is during the week, it's much more difficult for people now that it's on a Sunday this year or being observed on Sunday. I hope everybody has an opportunity to come out and be part of it. That's 2 p.m. at 43rd Street and 1st Avenue in New York City. The annual Tishabov service in honor of uh, our brothers and sisters in Israel and keeping in mind Jews in danger around the world. Galitzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast next to Jamie. Galitzal, Shashtayim, Kanran Yevnai, Imashikoyachshav. זיהום הסלמונלה בסלטי שמיר וטחינת הנסיך. ברשתות השיווק ממשיכים להוריד את המוצרים הנגועים מהמדפים. כתובתנו אלונה בלקין, שמע את יושב ראש שדולת הבטיחות, חבר הכנסת איציק שמולי. המדיניות הנוכחית של משרד הבריאות מעמידה בסכנה גדולה מדי את הבריאות של הצרכנים, ובסופו של דבר מה שצריך לעשות הוא שברגע שמתגלה אירוע של הרעלה או זיהום במזון בתוך המפעל, חייבים בדיווח בזמן אמת למשרד הבריאות ולציבור. זו הדרך היחידה למנוע את האסון הבא. בתוך כך בוועדה לביקורת המדינה דנו הבוקר בזיהום הסלמונלה במוצרי יוניליבר. אסתר אדמון, המייצגת את עובדי המעבדות הרפואיות שאחראים על בדיקת המוצרים של החברה, אמרה הכתובת הייתה על הקיר, אין מספיק כוח אדם. זו מחלקה שהתפקיד שלה לזהות ולמגר את הסלמונלה, שבה עובדים רק שלושה עובדי מעבדה. שיהיו חרוצים כמה שיהיו, לא יצליחו לפקח. אני לא מאשימה לא את יוני, ואני מאשימה את הרגולטור. הכתובת הייתה כתובה על הקיר. הממשלה התכנסה לדיון מיוחד העוסק בתקציב המדינה הקרוב על רקע פרסום הגזרות השונות ובהן מס חדש על פיצויי פיטורין. כתבנו תומר ורון שמע את שר האוצר כחלון שאמר נוריד מיסים. כפי שעשינו בתקציב הקודם, גם בתקציב הזה אנחנו ממשיכים בהורדת מיסים. לתפיסתי, הורדת מיסים זה מחולל צמיחה, זה מנוע צמיחה, כמובן בנוסף להשקעות ומנועי צמיחה נוספים. בטורקיה אומרים כי הסכם הפיוס עם ישראל יאושר בפרלמנט עד לסוף השבוע הבא. כתבתנו דנה גוטר. שר החוץ הטורקי מבלוט שאושולו צוטט בסוכנות הידיעות אנדולו ואמר שאישור הפרלמנט על ההסכם עם ישראל התעכב בגלל ניסיון ההפיכה בטורקיה בחודש שעבר, אבל ייחתם בהקדם האפשרי. בטורקיה רוצים לאשר את ההסכם לפני שהפרלמנט הטורקי יצא לפגרה בסוף השבוע הבא עד ה-20 בספטמבר. בסוף חודש יוני אישר הקבינט המדיני-ביטחוני בישראל את ההסכם. תוקנה התקלה באתר אלעל שמנעה רישום מוקדם לטיסה באמצעות האינטרנט. כתבנו ניתאי ענבי מזכיר כי היום הוא היום העמוס ביותר בנתב"ג ובשדה צפויים לעבור יותר מ-83 אלף איש וכ-500 טיסות יוצאות ונכנסות. מזג האוויר מחר עלייה קלה בטמפרטורות. ולסיום, עיריית תל אביב החלה היום בהריסת הסינרמה בעניין הקולנוע האגדי ביגאל אלון. במקומו של המבנה העגול יוקמו מגדלי משרדים. כתבנו מיכאל האוזר טוב שמע במקום כמה עוברי אורח שנפרדו מהסינרמה. עצוב לי שמוצאים אנשים בגלל טייקון שקנה את המקום הזה באורסון. הגיע הזמן שיהרסו אותו, כי זה מתחייר את כל האזור פה. ואין מה השימוש בו, שיעשו אותו למשהו אחר, אבל לא חייב להרוס. כן, אלה החדשות שעורכת חן רבי. בחסות 
in Meishorim, first of all, they, we have the famous streak, you know, which is King George, uh, named after King George V. After Yafo, it becomes Strauss. Now, who's Strauss? So there was a Jew by the name of Nathan Strauss, an American Jew. Now, there were three Strauss brothers, uh, all born in Germany, all of whom became millionaires. Uh, they founded Macy's uh, in department store. Uh, Abraham and Strauss, the uh, A&S, the famous department store. Very, very wealthy, very assimilated, very reformed Jews. The oldest Strauss, Isidore Strauss, uh, became a member of Congress. He was one of the first Jews ever elected to Congress. He was elected in the term of Grover Cleveland. And uh, he headed many institutions, but he didn't associate himself too much with the Jews. He and his wife were lost on the Titanic. The second one, Nathan Strauss, the second brother whom we're talking about, uh, lived in uh, Talbotham, Georgia. And uh, he uh, was a very talented person. Uh, when uh, he went into the, uh, after the success in the department stores, they made an investment house, an investment bank in New York. He moved to New York, where he was the uh, park commissioner of New York. And he was offered the nomination to be mayor of New York in 1894, which was also, for a Jew, was a uh, very high honor. However, he refused, and he spent, uh, his special philanthropy was providing sterilized, pasteurized milk for the poor and creating health clinics for children. One of the health clinics that he created is here, on Rechov Strauss, it's like the first Hadassah place in Yerushalayim. It still says on it for, uh, uh, to serve all races, creeds, and religions. And uh, in honor of the fact that Strauss established that uh, uh, clinic, which uh, at, at the time was uh, uh, not only modern, but at the time it was like the only one around, it, uh, it served together with Bikr Cholim as being, uh, and uh, Shari Tzedek was just getting started also. Uh, so therefore they named the street Nathan Strauss. And uh, I find it, uh, not ironic, but I find it interesting that probably Strauss has no other memorial in the world. Nobody knows about him except that piece of the street in front of his clinic here in Yerushalayim in the Mr. Haredi neighborhood. But his, uh, his wish is fulfilled, because if you go by there, there are Arabs that come there. there everybody comes there, and it's, it's operated as a uh, free health clinic, and he left money uh, to support it. The third brother, by the way, uh, was the Oscar Strauss, who was the first Jewish ambassador. He was appointed ambassador to Turkey, and uh, uh, Theodore Roosevelt... Uh, gave him uh, great honors, and he used his influence with the Turkish government to try and help the Jews here in the land of Israel. So uh, that's why it's Rehov Strauss. After Rehov Strauss, it becomes Rehov Yecheskel, as it goes up to Geula. Now, in Geula, the streets are named after prophets of Israel, P-R-O-P-H-E-T-S. 
the prophets of Israel. There's uh, Yoel and Hosea and Omos and Svanya and Yechezkel and Yeshayahu. Those are a whole series of streets that exist. Uh, and therefore, the main street is called Rehov Anavim, the, the street of the prophets, because all of the streets there, uh, apparently, originally, they thought that they would name them. Uh, uh, there's also a street Ezra there, a street Nehemiah. One of the other things that there is there is that they began to name the streets after the high priests, after the Kohanim especially those that are mentioned in the, in the Bible. So there's Eli HaKohen, and then there's Adoniyahu HaKohen, names of Kohanim Gedolim uh, from the time of the Tanakh, the first temple. Once they named the street Eli HaKohen, so then they had to put it together with the uh, first chapter in the book of Shmuel, uh, the Haftor of Rosh Hashanah, which describes the birth of Shmuel. So there's a street called Elkanah, which was the name of Shmuel's father, that runs into Eliyah Cohen. And there's also a street there called Chana, who is the mother of Shmuel Anovi. And then there's a street called Penina, after the other wife of Elkanah. So all of them go together because of the fact that they fit together in the Tanakh as well. We all know that there's also a main street called Shmuel Hanavi, uh, which marks the end of the neighborhood. In Gula, you will also find a street named David Yellen. Now, there are also sections that are named after great Talmidei Chachomim, great scholars of Israel. So we have a Rashi street, and we have a Rashbam street, Rashi's grandson. And they were going to name a street after Rabbeinu Tam, Rashi's most famous grandson, but again, uh, the street didn't continue, and they ran out of streets before they ran out of names. There are streets named after great scholars, Talmud Chachomim, and their books. One of the streets is Dechemed. Dechemed is Rabbi Yechevskiya Medini. He was a Jew from Turkey who emigrated to the land of Israel. The Dechemed is an encyclopedia. And you're talking about an encyclopedia before there were computers. Before there were research books, the man had a photographic memory and apparently saw every book on Jewish scholarship that ever was written. Everything imaginable is in the book, but it's a masterpiece of halachic literature. However, it is a little disorganized, and it's not easy to find anything there. But it's all there somewhere. And it really is uh, probably until the Encyclopedia Talmudit in our time, uh, one of the great masterpieces of reference works in the Talmudic and Halachic fields. So there's Dechemet, he has a street named after him, but it's not named Medini Street, it's named after his book. And the same thing is true, there's a Prichodosh Street after Rebbechevsky de Silva, a Jew of the 1700s, a Svartic Jew, who wrote an outstanding commentary to the Shulchan Aruch, and is quoted by all of the uh, commentaries to the Shulchan Aruch, both Ashkenazic and Smartic, a very, very famous sefer. There are a number of interesting streets as you come closer towards Makor Baruch. There's a street called Yosef ben Matityahu. 
Yosef ben Matityahu is the Hebrew name of Josephus Flavius. But they didn't want to call it Josephus Street because it doesn't sound as kosher as Yosef ben Matityahu does. Most people don't know who Yosef ben Matityahu is. Who are li most of the people who live in that neighborhood don't know who Yosef ben Matityahu is, so it's pretty safe. Josephus, as we know, is one of the difficult characters to judge in Jewish history. Many hold him to be a hero, and many others hold him to be a traitor. He was a historian. He wrote the Antiquities of the Jews and the Wars of the Jews. Much of what we know about Second Temple times is from Josephus, and it's been established pretty much that he was quite an accurate historian, and his books are, even today, quite popular, especially in academic circles, but there are popular editions that can be purchased in the bookstores as well. There's a street there called Bargiora, which is named after one of the heroes of the revolt against the Romans in the Second Temple time, right before the Churban, Shimon Bargiora. So there's a section where the streets are named after people who lived at the time of the destruction of the Second Temple, the people who participated in the rebellion against Rome and were eyewitnesses to it. In Meyer-Shorim, we have Chaye Odom Street, which again is a street named after a book. The person who wrote the book, Rabbi Avraham Danzig, was a disciple of the Gaon of Vilna, and the book Chaye Odom is a condensed form of the Shulchan Aruch. This book, Chaye Odom, was used very extensively in Lithuania and White Russia, and it was taught in the Yeshivot as a basic halachic book, as it remains until today. In our time, the Mishnah Brura has eclipsed it. But the Chai Odom, for many generations, was the basic book of uh, decision for Lithuanian Jewry. And after the Chai Odom came the Orach HaShulchan, and then the Mishnah Brura, but the Chai Odom was and remains today as a tremendous source of uh, Jewish thought and halacha. And it is taught, it, even today, in many, many yeshivot. In fact, there's a class in the Chai Odom every... Sabbath here in Shari Chesed. So the name of the street is Chai Odom, not Rabbi Rom Danzig. There's a street called Ein Yaakov. That's Rabbi Yaakov Ibn Chaviv, a Jew from Salonika, who lived in the 16th century and who gathered all of the legends, all of the Agadot, the anecdotes, the stories, the Drashot and the Gemara, and put them all in one book. In other words, he left in the Agadic parts uh, of the Talmud, and that became known as Ein Yaakov. It was a very, very popular book, especially among Eastern European Jews. There were groups of Jews that would come every night to study Ein Yaakov. It is published as a separate sefer, even though everything in that book uh, is found in the Talmud. There's a street in Meyashorm called Ethiopia. That's because of the Coptic Church, the Ethiopian Coptic Church, which was protected by the English because of the fact that the English uh, then uh, included, uh, the English, British Empire then included the Sudan and uh, parts of Ethiopia and had great influence in Ethiopian affairs. And therefore the Ethiopian Coptic Church was built there and the street was named after it called Ethiopia. It's slightly incongruous as far as its location in Meyer but that's where it is. There's also a street called B'nai Brit, which is named after the American organization, the B'nai Brit, which is the oldest Jewish fraternal organization in the United States, and for which many, and, uh, which for many years uh, was the sponsor of the Hillel Foundations on college campuses and other communal Jewish activities. 
Here also in Israel they've contributed to building and especially to types of program to improve people's health. Because of that, therefore, there's a little street that turns off B'nai B'rith. Uh, you'll recognize it because that's where the taxis go to B'nai Brak. And that street is called uh, B'nai B'rith. Most of the streets have no names in this area because the streets are so small and they are really only alleyways and they don't lead anywhere. And therefore, many of them don't even appear on official maps. You see the line that there's a street there, but that there's no name and it doesn't, it's certainly not a through street. Again, because of the fact that the entire system may assure him was built almost as a fortress with courtyards and off the courtyards where the house is opened, uh, walls, so it's not made for any t uh, sort of traffic pattern. Uh, there was a Rechov Hashuk, uh, the market uh, place, and that's where the market was and is. And there's a Rechov Beit HaKneset, where the synagogue was and is. But lately, again, because of the pressure to name so many streets uh, in the Mea Shorim after great rabbis, uh, the names of the streets are starting to change and have names of people. Most of the names are even ad hoc names, even if not officially recognized or appearing in the uh, booklets of the city, and certainly not in the memory of the people who first began those neighborhoods. Again, in conclusion, we see that these neighborhoods were developed basically on their own, uh, without any city direction or planning, and they contributed to the expansion of Yerushalayim, and eventually... Uh, they all amalgamated together, the streets ran together, and these neighborhoods, Geula, uh, Makor Baruch, Meyashorim, etc., are the most densely populated areas in the city of Jerusalem. This concludes tape number 482, entitled Geula, Meyashorim. And you could actually get more information about that and all of Rabbi Wine's lectures at 1-800-499-WEIN and RabbiWine.com. There are events going on uh, for Tisha B'Av, which we're going to get to, and Rabbi Weil is going to be joining us in hour number three. I want to get started on Rabbi Wine's lecture on the Vilna Gon and Balatanya. This comes from the um, the Halachic Disputes in Jewish History series. The Vilna Gon and the Balatanya, Rabbi Beryl Wine at JM in the AM. Tonight's lecture concerns itself with the Gon of Vilna and... Uh of Schneer Zalman of Ladi, the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Balatanya. Now, I'm not going to discuss uh, directly uh, the dispute between the uh, Hasidim and their opponents and the historical uh, events that took place then. I'll only uh, touch on those things tangentially to here. But this is a question of approaches to halacha. And through approaches to halacha, it's really through approaches to how to deal with the world, the Jewish world and the non-Jewish world. How to look at the, our society and how to react to it. And they're two very, very different people, even though they are both enormously great people. They live, uh, the Gon dies in 1797. Uh, the uh, Balatanya outlives him by 20 years. The Gon represents the non-Hasidic element of Ashkenazic Jewry. 
The Gaon was a strong opponent of Hasidut. And the Balatanya is the uh, scholarly, uh, philosophical, Kabbalistic interpretation of Hasidut. He is not the same type of Hasidut that was practiced later in the Ukraine or in Galicia. Uh, he's not into uh, uh, potions or uh, magic uh, incantations. He's not a popular Rebbe in the sense uh, that he deals with uh, these matters, but he is the, the Tanya itself is the philosophic and uh, halachic defense of uh, the ideas of Kabbalah and Hasidus. And it's interesting that uh, the uh, Gon's disciple, Reb Chaim of Alojan, wrote a sefer called the Nefesh HaChaim, which is the philosophic and halachic and Kabbalistic uh, disagreement with Hasidus. Rabbi Norman Lamb uh, has written uh, extensively on the fact that both the Tanya and the Nefesh HaChaim apparently say the same thing, but from different directions. The Gaon of Vilna, who was born in 1720, is uh, a one of a kind. Everyone that we have discussed until now uh, has uh, their equal in their generation. It's like uh, they're great, maybe the greatest of the generation, but they're part of the generation. The Gaon is not part of his generation. The Gaon is a uh, superman. Uh, the uh, Reb Chaim Valoshiner says the Gaon is the Ramban, the Rashboa. He's a throwback of four or five hundred years since we've seen such a person. The Gaon belongs to the time of Rashi and the Rambam, not to the time of the 18th century. The Gaon, uh, his erudition, his genius, his knowledge... Uh, the fact, his industry, the fact that he kept a notebook in which he recorded every moment of his life in which he considered time wasted, uh, places him in a completely different category than anyone else. Now, Dagon in his lifetime holds no official rabbinic or community position. The Gon is a completely private person. He's in his own room. He's in the original ivory tower, for which there is no one that can interrupt him. And he does not lead a group. And in fact, in a matter, he does not even write books. All We have, according to my notes, 54 books attributed to him, but none of them were written by him. They are all written by his disciples and his students and his sons who say this is the interpretation of the Gon. But the Gon didn't write books. There's a school, a modern school, uh, that has glorified the Hasidic movement even though they themselves are not observant and who have... uh, 
sought to romanticize it. So one of their leaders wrote, that school exists here in Israel very strongly, by the way, in the universities. Like Buber wrote this famous work on Hasidus, right? But Buber had a connection to Hasidus like I'm an astronaut. But, uh, but that's the way it goes. And uh, so uh, they said, well, the uh, Gon created books, but the Baal Shem Tov created people. But they're wrong on both counts. Uh, the Gon did not create books. The Gon's influence uh, permeated an entire society, even though he never stepped outside of his house. I mean, he went into exile when he was a young man, etc. He traveled, but basically, uh, he, uh, in his mature years, he stayed in his house. He didn't conduct the yeshiva. They say that Reb Chaim Valozhiner is his main disciple. Reb Chaim Valozhiner writes that two or three times a year, the Gon gave him 20 minutes or a half hour. He saved up all his questions. He came, you know, he uh, spoke to the Gon, and uh, the half hour was up, that was it. And then he came back a few months later. He was not someone that learned the Chevrusa with the Gon. Nobody did. Nobody could. And uh, the only one that, interestingly enough, that had a personal relationship with the Gon was the Dubner Magid, of Yaakov Krantz. He and the Gon were friends. He was like the only person that had entry to the Gon. And the Gon would call him in every so often that he should uh, reprimand him, that he should uh, tell him ethical things. He should point out, uh, uh, you know, failings. It was a very, very interesting, unusual relationship between the Magid of Dubna and between the Gon. The legend about it, which uh, more than anything else characterizes the Gon, is that uh, the, the Magid said to him, you know, uh, you're the Gon of Vilna, right? And you know Kolatora Kula, and you sit and learn all day, etc. He said, uh, that's very good for you. He said, but go out on the marketplace in Vilna, you know, where the Jews have to sell uh, boots and fish and be carpenters and uh, teamsters. And let's see if you're the Gon there. That would be a trick. That would be an accomplishment. In Yiddish it would be, that would be a kunst. And the Gon said, who says, he, he wept. He said, you're right, but who says, as medavzayna kunzmacher? Who says that we have to, we have to perform, uh, these types of tricks, right? So the Gon, uh, the Gon realizes that nobody's gonna be like him. You know, everybody wants to be like somebody. Nobody wanted to be like the Gon because it's like saying, I wanna be like Rashi, I wanna be like the Rami. You know, it's, it's beyond us. J.M. in the A.M., the Vilna Gon and the Balatanya Halachic Disputes in Jewish History. Rabbi Beryl Wine continues to address that next here at J.M. in the A.M. Thursday morning on this August 11th, the 7th of Menachem Av, 80 degrees, afternoon thunderstorms, and a high temperature of 91.1 as we continue our nine days format here at J.M. in the A.M. There are events going on. 
that we will discuss within minutes uh, on Tisha B'Av that are important for Tisha B'Av Day itself. Uh, we will discuss all of that coming up. Plus, uh, Steve Weil is going to be joining us as uh, we discuss the OU's presentation of the um, Tisha B'Av Kinos for this coming Sunday. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Echinish Masar Rav Zevin, Yosef Alevi, and Esther Basar Yosef Alevi. Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. We read in Mesechus Sanhedrin, Omar Ula. Ula said, Yai Sivalach Mine, let Mashiach come, but let me not see him. Vichain Omar Rabba, and Rabba said the same, Yai Sivalach Mine. Let Mashiach come, but let me not see him. Abaye asked Rava, Omar le Abaye, My taima, what is the reason? Ilema mishum chevla shel Mashiach. What is the reason that you do not want to be here when Mashiach will come? The answer is, because of the chevla Mashiach. Because the period preceding the Mashiach, when there will be the birth pains of Mashiach, and the world will be in tumult. Towards the end of World War I, the Germans came into Galicia. They killed 12 Jews who they accused of being spies. The Jews came over to the Blushva Rebbe. They were crying. He told them, Remember what I'm telling you now. You are crying about 12 people. There will be a time when they will kill millions. I don't want to be there. A Jew in Borough Park was present at the time the Blushva Rebbe said that. He went through Auschwitz and Birkenau and survived. When he came to Yerushalayim, he went to the Kostel Hamaravi. He went to the wall. He recalled the words of the Blushva so many years ago. In the last days of the first Besamikdosh, the Nevi'im, all the prophets saw what was happening Yermiyoa Novi said, If it's going to happen, I have to be with them. The first two Prokim Avecha, the first two chapters, were in fact written before the Chorban. They were written before the destruction of the Beis Hamikdosh. Yermiyoa saw Al Piroach HaKodesh by Divine Spirit all that would happen. He cried out to everybody. The third, the fourth, in the fifth chapters were written after the Chorban Beis Hamikdash, following the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash. Yirmiyo said, "I was there. Ani Agever, Ra Ani B'Shevet Evrasoi." When they chained all the Jews together and they brought them to the slave market, Yirmiyo was standing there. He stood with them and he cried, "Why didn't you listen?" This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day. JM in the AM, thank you very much, Rabbi Goldwasser. Uh, nine days format here at JM in the AM. <clears throat> By the way, speaking of the nine days, I want to take this opportunity to thank Kevin and his staff at the Eden Walk on 34th Street in New York City. Uh, they, they've been doing a whole bunch of great things for the nine days for their customers, but yesterday when we were there... Um, they treated us royally, and it is much appreciated. So Kevin and Eden Walk, who always have been spectacular 
uh, to us and to their customers over the years. I say thank you, and they've got a great nine days uh, situation, as the kids like to say. they got a good nine days situation going on there, so you can check that out uh, if you're near 34th Street today. So thank you, Kevin, everybody at Eden Walk, <coughs> from all of us here at JM and the AM. Uh, the Chavetz Chaim Heritage Foundation reminds you that you can unite this Tisha B'Av with over 50,000 Jews in 700 gatherings around the world. I couldn't believe when I saw the list of where this was taking place. 700 gatherings around the world. The Chavetz Chaim Heritage Foundation's uh, Tisha B'Av worldwide event this year is called Opening the Door. It's a presentation sponsored by Debbie and Elliot Gibber and family. It includes many incredible Torah personalities, uh, including our Shmuel Kamenetsky, Rabbi Yitzchak David Grossman, or by Sucher Fran, or by Pesach Krohn, or by Warren Goldstein, or by Y.Y. Jacobson. If you go to powerofspeech.org, powerofspeech.org, you can find the location in your neighborhood for this year's Chavetz Chaim Heritage Foundation Tisha B'Av event. Again, it's called Opening the Door. Go to powerofspeech.org, powerofspeech.org, for all the information. All righty. So check that out and enjoy. I got a note from a cantor, Benny Rogoznitsky, the other day. They're doing a Tisha B'Av Kumzitz in Manhattan after Eicha. Stories and Songs of Jerusalem this coming Saturday night at 10 p.m. I think this is a beautiful, beautiful idea. A lot of people are um, not in the mood after Eicha to just go home and, and call it a night. A lot of people want to uh, share stories of inspiration and be part of a um, of an experience. So this coming Saturday night, there's a Tisha B'Av Kumzitz with Cantor Benny Rogoznitsky, Chilu Posen, and the Mazamrim Choir. Um, there's no charge, but they are asking if you're planning on coming to RSVP. It starts at 10 p.m. at the Parkey Synagogue on East 68th Street in New York City. Information, parkeysynagogue.org. Again, that's parkesynagogue.org for all the information. Reminder, a Sunday is the Tisha B'Av Mincha prayer service at the Isaiah Peace Wall, sponsored by Amcha. That is happening this coming uh, a Sunday, starting at 2 p.m., a Tisha B'Av prayer service for Israel and endangered Jews worldwide. It's across from the United Nations on First Avenue at 43rd Street, starts at 2 o'clock. Bring your talis and tefillin to the Tisha B'Av service this coming Sunday. Uh, Project Inspire, as we discussed yesterday, presents the Formula, a compelling 50-minute film presentation with insights from Ravarie Yamalkiel Cutler Shlita and Rapilo David Shlita. How to achieve guaranteed success in Avas Yisrael and bringing Hashem's children back to Torah. It's the 2016 Tisha B'Av film from Project Inspire. You can go to the web at the Project Inspire website to get information. Also, don't forget, that's starting at 6.30 uh, on our network and on a variety of others, starting at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time on Sunday. Charlie Harari live with the final two hours of Tisha B'Av. It's a great way to end the day in an appropriate fashion. And Project Inspire brings that to you. We'll uh, remind you as we get closer and closer. Also, the OU, of course, uh, if you go to OU.org, uh, you can get information about their Tisha B'Av Kinnis service. Uh, based in Florida and Israel this coming Sunday, and how you can join in. We'll discuss some of those details with Rabbi Weil, who's going to be in our studio coming up here at JM in the AM. So there you have it. I want to thank Rabbi Beryl Wine, his lecture on the Vilna Gone, 
and the uh, Balatanya is uh, underway, and um, information about his lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN and RabbiWine.com. 7.36, Thursday morning broadcast at JM in the AM. It's beyond us. So the Gon is a, uh, a mystery to us. Now, the Gon, the Gon's basic halachic approach is that everything is found in the text of the Torah. In the text of the Talmud. And that therefore all of the later works are, so to speak, extraneous if one deals with the text itself. So then uh, there's no problem. He interprets the famous uh, Talmudic statement, If the Jewish people would not have sinned, then we would have only had the five books of Moses and the book of Yoshua. We wouldn't have needed the rest, because the rest is only necessary because we don't understand the five books of Moses, and we don't understand the book of Yoshua. So David HaMelech had the right to heal him for us, we needed all the other books to give us some sort of sense. But if we would be, uh, to, a, to a great extent, uh, higher people, we wouldn't need all of that. that. You know, we don't need Yeshaya Novi to tell me what the problems are. The Chumash says it. But we don't see it in the Chumash. And the Gaon came to show it to us in the Chumash. He came to show it to us in the Talmud. His most famous halachic works, therefore, so the Gon doesn't come to Paschal halacha. He's a parshon and he's an amkon. He's a parshon. He comes to explain, and he's an amkon. He goes to the depths of the subject matter and to the correct text. From that, we find what the halacha is. The halacha jumps us in the face. So he doesn't write a book. Or he's not interested in the Shulchan Aruch as a book. Now, the Gon wrote uh, a comment. We have a commentary to Shulchan Aruch called the Be'er Agra, which is written by his children. The Gon's comments to the Shulchan Aruch. Again, he corrected the text in many places. He revealed sources. And he disagrees in many places. And then he also edited the Talmud. So that we have, especially in the Vilna edition, we have his notes on the side of the, uh, the page in which he makes emendations and corrections. Now again, no one would, no one would dare touch the text. When you touch the text, you're a professor. But the Gon, the Gon is so above criticism, he's so above everything, that uh, he uh, he can do it without uh, without anyone faulting him. There's no one that's made as many corrections as the Gon has, and he did it on the basis three things. When he uh, went into exile, he visited many many libraries and saw original manuscripts. The Gon had a photographic memory. Once he saw something, it was there. So he didn't have to take the manuscripts back with him. And the second thing was comparison 
of what the Rishonim said, of what the Rashi, Tosfus, what the early Rishonim said. And the third thing was intuition. And the Gaon had a holy intuition that this is really what it said. And this is what it is. I'll give you a few examples in a few moments that are really astounding as to uh, how the Gaon looked at the text. So the Gaon is text-based. Now, the Gaon had uh, two sets of rules. One set of rules in halacha for himself, his own private practice, according to what he felt was correct. And then the public practice, which many times did not coincide with his decisions. The Gaon never attempted to impose his decisions on the public. And many times he never even revealed them to the public. There's a very famous story. Uh, the uh, the Gon wasn't the Rav in Vilna. The Rav in Vilna was a great Talmud Chacham by the name of Rabbi Shmuel Avigdor. Now there's a certain problem being the rabbi in town when the Gon is there too. All right, that can inhibit people. But Rabbi Shmuel Avigdor was a very very strong person, very strong person. So there was a whole story about a woman with a chicken, with a milk that fell on the chicken, and whether it's kosher or not kosher, etc. So the woman made the mistake of shopping the question. She wasn't satisfied with one. So she asked one of the students of the Gon that she should find out what was the opinion of the Gon. And then she went to the Roventown, to Reb Shmuel Avigdor, and asked him what the Shiloh was. Reb Shmuel Avigdor said the chicken is kosher. The Gon felt that it was not kosher. When Reb Shmuel Avigdor heard that the Gon said it was not kosher, so he went to him and he said, you know, you're going to undermine my authority in town. So you and I now have to go to the woman's house and we're gonna, she's gonna serve us that chicken and we're both gonna eat it. Which is one way of getting a meal. <laughs> the Gon agreed. This is the, this is the story. You know, that, that the Gon is such a figure that there, there are, uh, tons of stories. So whether they are or aren't really makes no difference. So they went to the woman's house, and Shmuel Avigdor ate from the chicken. The Gon, we have a concept in Aloha, Shavya, Anafsheh, Chatichar, Yisura. A person can say that something is forbidden to me, even if it's not forbidden halachically. But if I say it's forbidden to me, it's forbidden to me. So the Gon is in a quandary. On one hand, he has to eat because he cares because of the rabbi. On the other hand, he doesn't want, he can't eat because he has said that it was forbidden. So the legend is that as he put the, uh, as he came to eat the chicken, a wax candle that was on the table fell and burned the chicken and he didn't have to eat it. But we saw from there, we saw from there uh, that the Gon was not uh, someone to impose his will or to publicize his, uh, 
they say that after that incident, the goal never answered any Shailen Aloha. Never again responded to questions asked. There was, there were, uh, there were, uh, there was a rabbi in town, there were judges in town, but the gone was out of that. Now the gone is, for instance, one of the greatest students of Kabbalah, but the gone is not a Kabbalist. There's a difference. Uh, the gone, uh, has customs, minhogim of the gone, some of which became accepted in Lithuanian Jewry, most of which never became accepted in Lithuanian Jewry, but some of them retained themselves in the yeshivot because of the fact that the main yeshiva was Valozhin, and Valozhin was founded by Reb Chaim of Valozhin, who was the gone's disciple, so therefore it carried over. There's a sefer called Masay Rav, which describes all of his customs. We have some of his customs here in Jerusalem, especially in this neighborhood, because the people who founded Sharei Chesed were descendants of the Lithuanian Jews who came here in the 19th century, all of whom were descended from disciples of the Gaon of Vilna. Rivlin, Ravkish, the whole of those families all were from the Gaon of Vilna, and therefore many of those customs exist here. The Gaon had a special Musa Hatfila, in which uh, he eliminated certain prayers, which he said are not, uh, for instance, we don't say uh, the custom of the Gaon is that Friday night or Yontav night, we don't say the verses, we don't say Vishomru Bnei Yisrael Sashabas, we don't say Vaidaber Moshes, Moadei Hashem. None of that is said. The Gaon says that's a hefsik. It has to, the Kaddish has to follow the Brocha immediately, and this is all. And so that custom we have in our synagogue, because of the fact we're neighbors with Shari Chesed, and the people that originally started the synagogue were influenced by the Shari Chesed. Uh, there are other uh, sorts of customs. The Gaon said that you don't say Yiskadal be Yiskadash. But you say Yiskadel v'Yiskadesh. The Gon is the world's greatest grammarian. We'll see in a minute how he sees halacha in the grammar. And therefore he says the correct pronunciation is Yiskadel v'Yiskadesh. Because in the Novi Yecheskel it says v'Yiskadilti v'Yiskadishti. It doesn't say v'Yiskadalti v'Yiskadashti. And the Chirik later becomes a Tzera, and therefore we say Yiskadel v'Yiskadesh. So that's a mark in all of the yeshivas, that that is how the Kaddish is said. Even though in the majority of the Jewish world, that is not at all the custom. There are other customs of the Gon, but let me give, point out to you a few things how he saw in the Posik what the rabbi saw in the Posik. We have a legend that Lemech, who is the father of Noah, died before the flood, and he died a, a relatively young man. He doesn't live the seven, eight hundred, nine hundred years. So to go and ask, where did the where did the rabbis take that from? How did they know? So he says, if you look in the Chumash, 
It says, Vayehi Yemei Melech. Everybody else, it says, Vayihiyu Yemei. Since it only says Vayihi, a shortened version, so therefore the Torah is indicating to us that he did not live the length of years that he should have lived. And therefore, he says, the reason that he died early is if he would have lived till the flood, then Noah, because of Kibberov, would have to take his father in. And the Rabboni Sholem didn't tell him that he could take his father in. And if he died immediately before the flood, people would say, well, Lemech was such a tzaddik, as long as he was alive, the flood didn't come. But Lemech wasn't such a tzaddik. So therefore, the Rabboni Sholem took him away early. So there's a, there's a whole philosophy here that a person's life is not always because of the person. There are so many factors that go into it. But it's all based on the fact that it says Vayihi in Baposik instead of saying Vayihi you. He says that you look by Chanoch. It says by Chanoch also, Ki Einenu, Ki also Elohim. That, that he's no longer here, he went to heaven. So it also says, Vayihi. It doesn't say, Vayihi you. And then it finally says, by these people, Asher Huchai, the years that he lived. What do you mean the years that he lived? And naturally it says how many years he lived. Those are the years that he lived. It's telling you that he had more years, but these are the years that he lived. And that for whatever the reason is, the years that could have been allotted to him. So it says it by Odom Arishon, because the Talmud tells us that Odom should have lived a thousand years, and he only lived 930. So the 70 years was taken from Odom Arishon and given to David Amelech, who didn't have any years. It's a whole way of looking at the world far differently than the way we look at it, Right? And by Avraham Avinu, it also says, Asher Huchai, because Avraham should have lived 180. He only lived 175 because the Lord did not want him to see that his grandson Esau already turned out to be an outlaw and a murderer, and etc. So he took him early. So that's why it says Asher Huchai. So he says it says it all in the Torah. If you know the grammar. Now we can look at that 500 times and never see it. What's the difference? Vayi, vayi, you. But that was the Gon's genius. That everything is in the Torah. The, yes, uh, I mean, the legends are enormous, but the, there was supposed to be a pidyon aben in the week of Parshas Bracious. So somebody said to him, uh, where is it alluded to in Parsha's Bracious that there should be a Pidyon Aben? So he said in the word Bracious itself, the Bracious is an acrostic. Ben Rishon Achar Shloshim Yom Tivde. That spells Bracious. But here's one in Allah, a famous Gemara that we all have difficulty with. The Gemara says, why didn't Shoal Amelech destroy Amalek? 
So the Gemara says because his Rebbe and Trudoe Goadomi, they read Mochel Tilche as Zochor Amolek, not Zechor Amolek. And because the Rebbe taught him wrong, there were no, uh, no punctuation in the Torah. So therefore the Gemara says that was his error. So the Gon says from there, a halocha, you know, we're very pious here. So when we read the Parsha Zohar, so we read it, Timche Zecher Amolek, Timche Zecher Amolek. The Gon says that we have a proof that it should be Zecher and not Zecher. Because he said that was the mistake. We find in Digduk many times in Tanakh that when there is a double comets, or or in Smichut it becomes eh eh. So therefore, the Rebbe also read Zecher Amolek, but he said originally it must have said Zochar, and because of the Digduk it changed to Zecher, and therefore he says that that's the origin of that error. And there literally are hundreds of such uh, examples from the Gaon of Vilna. The Gaon's uh, Shita regarding Tzesa Kochovim, uh, when we measure uh, the length of the day, uh, whether it's from sunrise to sunset, the Mogan Avram and others have a much longer day, they, from, the, uh, from dawn till, uh, till later, till the stars come out. So therefore, uh, according to the Gon, the Tzesa Kochovim is, uh, depends on where you're at in the world. At the equator, it's almost instantaneous. And if you're, uh, you know, in northern Alaska, it can be an hour and a half. By the way, I mentioned uh, when we discussed Rabbeinu Tam, why that Rabbeinu Tam holds 72 minutes. Where does he get 72 minutes from? Rabbeinu Tam is also aware that somehow in different places of the world, it gets dark earlier than in other places in the world. So why is it 72 minutes everywhere? So Rabbeinu Tam had a colleague, uh, Rabbi Yeshaya Detrani, from Italy, and in his Sefer in Tosfus Reed, on Shabbos, uh, in Perek Bama Madlikin, he explains Rabbeinu Tam's idea. And basically, Rabbeinu Tam knows that the world is round. It's a sphere. The sun sets, it goes below the horizon, correct? But light bends. There's a refraction of light. Light rays bend. What is the maximum angle of refraction that light can bend? So Rabbeinu Tam says it's 72 minutes. After 72 minutes, any light that you see is no longer the sun. It's clouds, it's other things reflecting. Because you've passed the maximum point of the refraction of light. Of how far light can bend. And therefore he says it's 72 minutes all over the world because of the fact that we're not going by, when it's dark, we're going by the angle of refraction of light. 
The Gaon disagrees with that. The Gaon has a different uh, order for the uh, Passover plate, for the Kaira of Pesach. The Gaon doesn't have three matzahs, he only has two matzahs. The Gaon has his, all of which is based, again, on his study of text. And because of that, therefore, uh, we see a completely different view of things. The Gaon planted the love of Torah amongst Lithuanian Jewry. The Gaon is the father of the yeshiva movement, even though he never had a yeshiva. He's the father of the Musser movement, even though he never dealt with Musser, though he's the one that saved the Mesilas Yeshorim. He said that in the first ten chapters of the Mesilas Yeshorim of Moshe Chaim Litzato, he said there's not one extra word. The Gon was the one that initiated the return of Jews to the Ashkenazic Jews to the land of Israel. It is his disciples who, uh, his disciples are the ones that came in the early 1800s. The Gon himself wanted to come. He literally missed the boat. When he came too late to the boat, he said he saw that in heaven they didn't want him to come. But the, uh, this is from a person who never left his room. So his influence on halacha is that he taught us to look at the text. Now he spawned many later commentaries. Uh, in Chumash, for instance, the Malbim, the Ksav, the Kabbalah, the Or Sameach, the all of the, the, the Nitziv of Alojin, the Hamikdover, all of them are based upon the idea of the Gon that it's all in the text. And don't tell me uh, commentaries and don't look from the outside. The Torah tells us its story from the inside. And if you know grammar, Hebrew, because the Torah is grammatically correct, it's the source of perfect grammar. And when there is any a diversion from the correct grammar, then the Torah is telling you something. And that's how the rabbis and the Talmud derived all of their halachas. That Torah Shabbat is based upon that understanding. So uh, the Gon is the, uh, the great influence in halacha. even though we don't have any halachics for him from him. Now we come to uh, the Balatanya. The Balatanya is, uh, to a certain extent, the opposite of Gon. The Balatanya is a public figure. He's a rebbe. He deals with thousands of people. He's a public figure. He uh, writes in his introduction, he wrote a famous halachic work called the Shulchan Aruch Harav, it's called. This halachic Shulchan Aruch is uh, accepted by everybody. It's not, there are certain things that are the province of Chabad, but there are many things that are universal that have broken out of the uh, 
narrower confines of uh, Chabad or even Chassidus and are universally accepted. His Shulchan Aruch, the Shulchan Aruch Arav, is a universal book. What happened with the Shulchan Aruch? Why do, what does he have to write another Shulchan Aruch for? Well, because the first Shulchan Aruch... As I'm Rabbi Beryl Wine's that, lecture on the uh, Vilna Gon and the Balatanya in the series Halachic Disputes in Jewish History. Information about uh, Rabbi Wine's lectures at 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Uh, we are getting closer and closer to Tisha B'Av. This coming Sunday is the observance. It's actually Saturday night and Sunday, the 10th of Av this year. But we are getting closer and closer. And one of the one of the ways that Tisha B'Av has become even more meaningful for those in our community who pay careful attention to these things is through the OU's presentation of their webcast from uh, more than one location. We'll explain all of that coming up. Next, at America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program, heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial, broadcasting live in the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey, around the world on the web, jmtheam.org, and of course on the NSN app. Rabbi Stephen Weil is in our studio. He is Senior Managing Director of the Orthodox Union. He and Rabbi Weinrib uh, together this coming, uh, well, not together, we'll explain that in a moment, but uh, this coming Sunday we'll be presenting the uh, OU's webcast of the Kinos service to make everybody's Tisha B'Av even more meaningful, especially for those who are not able to make it to synagogue, but even if you are able to, you will find these two sessions extremely beneficial to you to enhance the Tisha B'Av experience. Rabbi Weil, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. I appreciate that. The concept is, if I have it right, that Rabbi Weinrib is going to be in Israel, right, in Jerusalem. You will be down in Florida. In Boca Raton. In Boca Raton. And the, each of you will give your own presentation of the Kinnis service uh, live, right? They'll both be carried live on the yeah. web. There's actually five shuls that come together in South Florida to the Boca Raton Synagogue. Uh, where where we have the webcast and where we have the uh, it's about five and a half hours of of learning kinos and experiencing re- reliving and re-experiencing the tragedies of Jewish history. Who's responsible for five synagogues being able to come together to be unified That's on a day like that and to actually hold a program like that together? We actually do that. They're they're all OU synagogues. In fact, in Florida, we have tens of OU synagogues. And those that are in that area of what we call Southern Palm Beach County come together. It's pretty amazing, and a good message for Tisha B'Av, actually. Yes, it is. I assume Rabbi Weinrib will be at the OU Center in Israel. Yeah, Rabbi Weinrib will be broadcasting there. He also gets a nice crowd. Many of the people from Rechavia are American Olim, and they come. This year, what's interesting is the United Synagogue, the shuls in Great Britain, yeah. are going to be in their shuls, are going to be broadcasting the, uh, the Florida broadcast. It's, it's, afternoon in Tish- it's afternoon in England, but it's yeah. a Sunday. People are off. Yeah. So people all over Scotland, England, and Ireland are going to be coming and participating in the broadcasts that I do from, from Florida. How does one prepare... For a Kinnis broadcast, what has the last week or two, and I know it's longer than that for you, because like anybody who's heard your presentation, it's obvious that you've been preparing for quite a while before Tisha B'Av. But what are these couple of weeks before the observance of Tisha B'Av like for you? 
So it's interesting. I give a, a sheer at Goldman Sachs. I give a sheer in Midtown at the Grand Havana Room. Another group of hedge fund guys. So the the couple of weeks leading up to Tishabov, instead of us learning a sugin gemara or chumash, we're analyzing kinos. So it's almost like they're like the the I hate to say the preseason because God forbid you know, I take it very seriously. But a lot of the analysis I like can I'll use in those shiurim, and then you know what comes out of that. Obviously, I've prepared for it. But that's the, the pre-run, and then a lot of that will come out on Tisha B'Av itself. And uh, as you go through the kinos, is it, um, is it that certain years you concentrate on certain kinos and others you'll take others? Or are you able to find additional insights into those you've already analyzed and utilize those insights this coming year? A lot of the kinos, you know, it's like anything else that you learn again and again and again. You see different layers in it, right. especially with the Kalir. Uh, the, the, the man was just a, not only masterful when it came to language, but his ability to weave psukim midrashim amare chazal, fascinating. So I would say there are different layers. I prepare about 30, 35 kinos. We'll probably get to 16, 15 over the six hours. You know, it's, we never get... Well, yeah, look, the people get tired. I could, I could go to 6.30 because I've got the material, but it's not going to happen. Um, uh, this year, though, we have, we have two, two unique insights this year. And that, of course, the two of us were speaking about before. Right. It's the 40th anniversary of Entebbe. And there were five korbanos at Entebbe. Not to mention Surin Hershko, who for the last 40 years has been a quadriplegic as a, as a function of him you know, trying to save the hostages. He was a paratrooper. Paratrooper, yeah. And a fascinating man, a family who came from Romania. They were one of the Jews who Ceausescu sold to Israel. A really thoughtful, fantastic man. Um, we're going to talk about the sad part of Entebbe, you know, the part that doesn't necessarily get the, um, because it's the 40th anniversary, doesn't get the press that the positive part does. Right. As well, this is the 75th anniversary of the destruction of Latvian, of Lithuanian, Estonian, and Ukrainian Jewry. And then, as we talked about the two of us together, in 39, you had the, the pact where Molotov represented Stalin, von Ribbentrop represented Hitler, and they were going to divide up Poland, the Baltic states. Well, that was a dupe. Hitler just needed some time, and he waited till the summer, till June of 41, broke the pact. When the Wehrmacht came into the Baltic states, to the Ukraine, to white Russia, to Belarus, followed them was the SS. They had Waffen SS because the Lithuanians were horrifically anti-Semitic. They blamed the Jews for all the problems the communists cause. Between the Waffen SS, between the Einsatzgruppen, the annihilation that happened... Believe it or not, there's a smaller percentage of Lithuanian, of Latvian Jews that survive than even Polish Jews. Mm. Because the mass murders of, of Lithuanian, Latvian, Estonian Jews, most of them at the hands of their own countrymen, you know, who were tremendous Nazi sympathizers, um, they, were, they were annihilated mo for the most part in 41. Um... This summer, this Ex summer, 75 years ago. Explain why it's not unusual and why this practice has been in practice for hundreds of years for Jews to include recent events in the observance of Tisha B'Av, which is, of course, 2,000 years old. Yeah. I'm going to borrow from the terms of the Gadol Hador from the Rav. You know, in, in we, when we published the, the Rabbi Salavechik Kinos, the OU in, right. in Koran. Which is amazing. 
he says, you know, when you're looking at the destruction of the towns of the German Rhineland from the, s- the spring of 1096 that we observe on Tisha B'Av, right. you almost feel like you're reading the towns in Europe in 1939 through 1945. Um, when you're looking, for instance, at the impact that one human being had, whether it's Yoshiao HaMelech from the Bias Rishon, whether it is the story of the son and daughter of Rabbi Shmuel Kohen Gadol, whether it's the story of the Ten Martyrs, you know, on the one hand, we're analyzing their lives and the impact and the deprivation of the loss of losing them, but we could, we could literally, in those words, we could change the names. We think about what happened in Europe 75 years ago. We think about what happened un- under the Ukrainians and the, the Cossacks in, in the Chimonitsi massacres of the 17th century. You know, it, what, what I'm not doing this year, but uh, you know, shame on me that I'm not, I have the Sephardic Kinos, the Spanish-Portuguese Kinos, and some of the other Sephardic Kinos. And you see the tragedies of the, of the great Jewish communities of Svarad. And, and it's almost like, unfortunately, because of the nature of our history, and because the world has always been threatened by our message, by who we are and what we stand for, um, to a certain degree, many of these Kinos become ahistorical. Rabbi Stephen Weil is here. Um, many of us especially those of us who are familiar, for instance, with high holiday liturgy, uh, are sometimes amazed, those of us who are Ashkenazim, are sometimes amazed at how different the Spartic approach is to the high holiday liturgy, for instance. Uh, you know, Things that are crescendos for our service are not even included in their service and vice versa. Is there a big difference between the Kinnis and the Ashkenazi community as compared to the Spartic community? Yes. Um... Our focus, for instance, in some of our kinos, what happened in Germany in 1096, what happened with the destruction of French Jewry, the 41st kinos, Shalis Rufa Baish, where the Maram of Rottenberg was a student of Rabbi Yechiel of Paris, and he's an eyewitness to Nicholas Donin, who was a Geshmada Yid, became a Dominican friar, where the Dominican friars, really at the behest of Pope Gregory the Ninth, being pushed or supported, I should say, by King Louis the Ninth. By the way, Nachum, whenever I say the word Saint Louis, I choke. Saint Louis, you know, nothing against the Cardinals, right? <laughs> right. But Saint, Lu- and it's a beautiful city, wonderful. My kids live there. Yeah, it's wonderful. But the problem is, is Saint Louis. He is a function of his destruction of, of the Jewish people through destroying all Jewish text. Even though we were not expelled to like 1306, the end of French Jewry was 1242. Mm. And that was at the hand of Louis IX, who, as a function of this great act, became, he became sainted by, by the papacy. Right. Um, I'm sorry about that. So we, you were asking about... And in, addition, and in addition, when we think of the word St. Louis, we think of one of the horrific episodes of, uh, of the war. Yeah. Of, the, of the ship being turned back. My great uncle was on that ship. Yeah, your great uncle was on the St. Louis. Yes, goes to the U.S. then down to Cuba, is not admitted to Cuba and ends up back in Central Europe. So they, you know, they they came off the ship in Holland. Right. Somehow, through some way, through God's miracles, he he survived. But he knew many. He had many peers on that ship, and he knew many who never made it out of Europe. 
So, wow. So I was asking you about Ashkenazi yeah, and Sephardim. <laughs> the Sephardim are not going to focus on, right. on the terrible blasphemy against the Talmud, the terrible attack on the Torah Shabal Peh that happened by the Dominican friars in, the 13, in 1240 and 1242 in France. They're not as focused on the First Crusade, on the destruction of the Balea Masor of the German Rhineland. Is it, they're going to focus on issues and tragedies that happened in the lands of Sephardim. You know, the um, the discussion every year uh, often turns to how is it that we can mourn something that happened, you know, 2,000 years ago. Uh, is that the reason why so many of the events in Jewish history have seeped into the Tisha B'Av observance? Because it's really the only way for us to continue, you know, reaching back and observing a period of mourning for the Holy Temple? See, th- that's such a profound question. The, the Rav addressed your question. He said, and, and I, if I could use a litmus test to, to try to frame it, with the exception of Rabbi Yochanan, all of the Tanayim and Amorayim wanted the fast to be on the 9th of Av, which is what we observe, right. not the 10th of Forgetting this year, that's a nidcha. Right. I'm talking about, let's say that it didn't fall out on Shabbos. Why? Even though the, the large majority of the destruction was the 10th, the afternoon of the 9th is when General Titus comes in with a woman of ill repute, and he engages in fornication in the Kodesh Kedoshim. The Rav said, we are, not celebra- we are not commemorating the destruction of a piece of real estate. Look, as Jews, we, we value real estate, <laughs> but we're not, we're not commemorating the destruction of a piece of real estate. What are we mourning? The term he used was Silu Kashrina. That, that intense providential relationship that we had, that intense, w- w- the opposite of Silu Kashrin is Hashra'a Sashrina. The fact that God, so to speak, abandoned in terms of his providential relationship, the abode, the Jewish people, that allowed and that tolerated Titus to do what he did with a woman of ill repute. But what's the point? He said that all tragedy throughout the millennia, all tragedy throughout the millennia stems from that act of Silu Kashrina. That's what, that's what we're mourning. Because when you don't have the opposite, Hashra Sashrina, then the Germans can do what they did. Hamas can do what it does. Hezbollah can do what it does. The Shiite Republic, you know, the Khamenei and, and the Imams can do what they do. And, and he had a fascinating story that happened between him and Menachem Begin. You know that Yom HaShoah was declared. They, they originally wanted to have it on Pesach because right. what happened? They wanted to commemorate the, the Warsaw Ghetto Revolt. Right. So the religious party said you can't have a Yom HaShoah on Pesach. They pushed it to the week after. Menachem Begin was very close with the Rav. It goes back a couple of generations. The Rav's grandfather, Rav Chaim, was the, not only the Gadol Dor, but he was the Rav of Brest-Litovsk, of what we call Brisk in, in Belarus. Who is the president of the community? Menachem Begin's father. So the two of them got along very well. But when Theodore Herzl died, they didn't know it. They didn't have, you know, Fox News or CNN or the Internet at that point. They found out, you know, days later. So they, they decided, the president of the community, they were going to have an askara for the shloshim of Herzl. Where? In the main shul in Brisk. But Gadol Hador Abchaim says, absolutely not. You know, Theodore Herzl may have been a nice person, but that's, he's not something you'd put in the shul. That's not what he stood for. Look at what Zionism is. What happened? In the age-old menhag of Kala Yisrael, he might have been the Gadol Hador, but the Balabatim, <laughs> Menachem Begin's father trumped them, and they had the Askara in the main shul. So the Rav used to tease Menachem Begin about that. They would tease each other about oh, that sorry. all the time. Begin wanted to come to Boston to meet with the Rav. The Rav said, no, you're the Nasi, 
There has to be respect for the position that you have. The Rav would come to him. You know, Menachem Begin came in October during UN week. You know it yourself sure. from living in New York, what it does to traffic. So the Rav would always come, and they would meet. The Rav pushed Begin really hard to get to change Yom HaShoah. He says, you can't have theologically a Yom HaShoah outside of Tisha B'Av. Tisha B'Av is Yom HaShoah. All Chorban stems from Silu Kashchina, and he convinced Begin. And Begin went back to Israel, and his goal was to change Yom HaShoah to Tisha B'Av. He was all ready, and he was working. And the educational establishment sat down with him. They said, you know, Mar Begin, you of all people know. His whole family was annihilated. Right. You know, he was very insightful, and he fled. You know, most said, look, they, their whole context was World War I. World War I, who was better to us? The Germans were far better to us than the Russians. They stayed in Poland, and they were annihilated. He jumped over into, into Russia. He, he suffered in Siberia, but he survived. You know, his family was wiped out. So he really had an appreciation for what, what Yom HaShoah was. So they said to him, the educational establishment, they said, the ninth of Av, all the school children, all the high schools, there's no school, it's, it's vacation. If you want to teach the Shoah, and you want to teach, you know, Israelis to, to live in the context of what happened and to appreciate what happened, the only way we can do that is if you have a Yom HaShoah during the school year. So he backed off. Even though his intention was to move it to Tisha B'Av, when he realized what it would do educationally to the school year, he backed off. Interesting. And there is a component of heroism, uh, Yom HaShoah HaGvura. Mm -hmm. There's a component of heroism to it also, so maybe it's not totally a day that's focused just on the tragedy, but on some of the positive aspects of that period as well. Rabbi Steve Weil is here. We're talking about the OU webcast this coming Sunday, uh, go to OU.org for information, OU.org, where you can register and be part of the experience this Sunday. Rabbi Weinrib is going to be in Jerusalem. Rabbi Weil is going to be down in Florida, and you have an opportunity to uh, tune in and really be inspired and informed. I think one of the frustrating things for the average person, including myself out there, is uh, the, the most of the kinos are, are m even more difficult for us to understand than you know basic uh, uh, basic liturgy or you know things we're used to from the Siddur or even the Chumash. Uh, would you agree that some of them are written in difficult poetic fashion that uh, the average person finds hard to decipher at times? You know, you're so insightful, Nachum. The Ibn Ezra says the Ibn Ezra was extremely critical of us, you know, learning or, or reciting the Kinos of the Kalir. Because he says, you know, the goal, a person has to understand what they're saying. If they communicate to the Almighty, they've got to understand it. And with the words of the Kalir, and, and one thing I think, we, we've talked about this in years past. The Rav, Rabbi Soloveitchik, opened up many, many worlds. Many of the piyutim of the Kalir on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. The Malchios, Zichronis, and Shofros. But for sure, one of the things that he opened up to us was the Kinos of Tisha B'Av. People would come from all over the country. They would come to Boston for Tisha B'Av. You know, and he used to sit and he'd give a shear first and he'd recite Kinos till 5 o'clock. You know, and uh, I have some of those recordings and that's what we used. I have to thank Abe Levovitz at Sal. He recorded the Rav and the Rav allowed him to record him. And we used that to produce the, um, the, the Kinos of Rabbi Soloveitchik, the OU Kinos. As well, J.J. Schechter's book, J.J. used those tapes as well 
through the Taurus Harav Foundation, the Lord is righteous in all his ways, all that material came from those years in Boston. Unbelievable. And, uh, and, and you're, but you're so right. The Ibn Ezra was very critical of it, of, of the Kalir. Thank God we have the Rav Zatzal and we have the ability to understand the Kalir. It's, it's extremely rich. Extremely rich. And, and I hate to say this, but thanks to the Kalir and thanks to Rabbi Soloveitchik opening up the Kalir, I think Tisha B'Av is maybe one of the most meaningful days of the year. And, and, it, and it's interesting that you say it like that, because unless my perspective of 20th century Jewish community is off, I don't think it was ever like that before. I think the Rav, as you just indicated, was really the exception in terms of turning Tisha B'Av from a day of, okay, let's make Kinnis part of davening, so to speak, and, you know, we'll, we'll get through it as we are, you know, reading each and every one of these paragraphs, to a day where we could sit and analyze. It's not often where we take a part of what essentially is, you know, part of the tefillah. And I'm not saying Kinnis is tefillah, but it's, it's part of the service. And we stop and do that. Uh, you know, in, in the way that you're doing it, in the way that the Rav did it, etc. So I, I just think that it's a, it's sort of revolutionary. Yeah. In terms of getting to this point where now people understand that it's better to do kinnis this way than the old way. Yeah. You know what kinnis actually are? Every one of us, every Jew, whether we have parents or don't have parents, our status is mi shemesa of The Gemara, literally, what is that phrase? The dead is in front of us, meaning onanim. On Tisha B'Av. On Tisha B'Av. What we're doing is we're reliving the tragedy. The, the coffin is laying in front of us. And what are the kinos? They're the hespedim. Their eulogy is a, is a poor translation because what a hespade right. is, is we're trying to communicate and to appreciate the state of deprivation, what we've lost in the depth of the tragedy. But we're, we're literally reliving the tragedy each and every year. Like on Pesach, we relive Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. On Tisha B'Av, we relive the tragedy. Hence, and there may be people in this audience who are not familiar, but we can educate everybody and, and, and alert them to this. Hence, Tisha B'Av morning, we will not wear towels and tefillin, like an Onain would not wear towels and tefillin. Uh, and obviously, many aspects of Avelos, many aspects of mourning are incorporated, whether it's the, the way we wash or don't wash, uh, how we sit or don't sit, you know, on Tisha B'Av until the middle part of the day. And obviously... For those, uh, I would think at this point, most everyone knows uh, that eating and drinking is restricted on Tisha B'Av. So there are many things that are not done in order to get us into that frame of mind. And, that, you know, it's interesting. The, the, the physical aspects, <laughs> somebody told me this week they were frustrated by the fact that people make siyumim during the nine days. Why would you, and not, not discussing the loophole of a siyum, but just in, in order to eat meat. But just the idea, like if, if we have this practice that allows us and helps us get into the mood of Tisha B'Av, that helps us remember the temple and be even and be and delve more into this area of our history, why would we, you know, why would we give that up? Why wouldn't we use this physical practice to help us get into it instead of looking for quote unquote a way out of it? So I think the Jews in the Southern Hemisphere, they have it easier than us. It's their winter, you know. Right. We're in the middle of summer and it's just 
you know, yeah. especially think about Jews that live in an area like New York or Boston, Philadelphia. You get a s- small window of summer, everyone's excited, and then you get those three weeks in the middle. Mm, yeah, no, I agree with you on that. Also, their fast goes till about five o'clock <laughs> in the southern hemisphere. <laughs> you know, I, I, and, the, and the fact that they are fasting until nine thirty in Asar Mateves doesn't seem doesn't seem to make up for it. If you know what I mean, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> it is Tishabov after all. <laughs> but yes, it's a uh, it is different depending on where on earth uh, you are and it's funny because I once heard a, a contemporary well-known rabbi analyze the fact I think it was a one hour shear where he analyzed the fact that Judaism is essentially a western northern hemisphere religion that it's essentially you know go our, our halachic decisors etc you know generally are referring to uh, Europe and then afterwards you know the United States etc yeah. and not paying much attention to other parts of the world <laughs> I, I gotta tell you you know I, I do the Scallon residence for these Costa Rica tours whether yeah. it's Alaska or the, like this summer we did the Norwegian fjords there are certain places I'm not sure Jews were meant to live I mean halachically it's just challenging so you're in Norway and Shabbos ends what time we lucked out because we actually were on our way back to Amsterdam. So Shabbos, I think, only ended at 11.30. Right. You know, but, but there are certain parts, you know, there are certain parts of Norway, you know, the sun doesn't go down. Right, understood. Um, and if it's... And those poor people during the winter... I mean, I don't think they they see too much sun, you know, in, in right, the winter. And, and in the summer, they don't see much darkness. And in Amsterdam, the fast is going to go for a while. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. Interesting. That, by the way, it's a different discussion, but the, the story of the Jew, these Portuguese Jews who were forced to, to become conversos, they didn't have the option of right. leaving. And, and when Amsterdam freed itself from Spain and declared its, its autonomy and its religious autonomy, how these Portuguese Jews came and, and built, rebuilt their lives religiously, Jewishly, but they became responsible for all of international trade. I mean, they were trading on five continents. Wow. That, 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 that group is a fascinating story because literally you have Yesh Mayayan from no Jews in the Netherlands to this community that has a huge impact on our people. I assume you've been in the great synagogue of Amsterdam? Yeah. One of the most amazing, Portuguese synagogue. One of the most Incredible. amazing structures I've ever seen or been in. It's just, I, I, I cannot get over that visit there. Just unbelievable. And the, 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 it's uh, Brazilian mahogany because they were shipping things to Brazil. You know, they brought this back from Brazil. They were shipping mahogany wood all, all throughout Europe. And they took some of the finest and they used it, Zeke Levon Veo, to build this gorgeous shul. Boy, you must be an amazing scholar in residence. <laughs> <laughs> Seem to know everything around my while. No, nah, you know what it is. It's it's just fun to learn about different Jewish communities and, and, and different Jews how what they've added to the Masora. Yeah, no question about that. Uh, the OU presents uh, Kinnis in a, a unique and um, and a very interesting fashion. Rabbi Weinrib is going to be in Jerusalem, and Rabbi Weil is going to be in Florida. And OU.org will carry the entire thing, uh, in addition to the hundreds of people that will be with uh, both you and Rabbi Weinrib in the two locations. Uh, enhance your Tishaba by being part of it. And, uh, yeah, you wanted to add? Yeah, I have to thank uh, Richard and Deborah Parkoff. Each and every year, it, it, it's not easy. You know, the, the cost of broadcasting that all over the world, especially a, you know, a clear line communication. And I want to thank Richard and Deborah, who every year provide that. To, last year I had, on, on, on the broadcast, we had actually 12,000 people. <sighs> 
So it was you know, between those who were there and between the people coming in from, from all these different continents. Yeah, there are people for whom uh, Tisha B'Av is you know, toward the end of the day, and they're, uh, they're tuning in in order to hear the kinnis. So it's, uh, it's an amazing service. You do a great job at it. And those who, wanna, those who get you know, tired or want something to do later in the afternoon will replay the... It won't be live, but right. we'll replay Rabbi Weinrib and myself. So you'll find that at OU.org all through the day. Uh, I wish you a, uh, an easy and meaningful fast. On Thank the 10th of Av, this year it's not the nine days, it's the ten days, as I like to say. And uh, and I know we always say this, but hopefully this will be the last time. There's a lot of hope in the Jewish world now, Rabbi Weil. The 21st century has brought us to a point where I think Jews around the world are starting to recognize intellectually uh, the miracle that has occurred in the 20th century for world Jewry. And I think the, the stunning development of the state of Israel and the reunification of Jerusalem is finally seeping in on a much deeper level uh, once people have gotten over the initial euphoria. And I hope that this carries us through the next year to a point where uh, where Jews continue to appreciate what we have. And uh, don't forget that there was a time when we didn't have any of this. And uh, and that's that. And hopefully we'll continue to progress as a community. That's so beautiful the way you said that. We appreciate that. Thank you. An easy fast. And a, and a fast fast, as I like to say. <laughs> Rabbi Stephen Weil is the managing uh, director, senior managing director at the Orthodox Union. He and Rabbi Weinrub present uh, Kinnis this coming Sunday. Information, OU.org. Go to OU.org. We'll continue with Rabbi Beryl Wine and his lecture on the Vilna Gon, the Balatanya. And I will take an opportunity a few minutes from now to go through all the different events that are going on. Tisha B'Av Day in the community that we are aware of. You are listening to JM in the AM. You want to put on film, this is film, this is how you put it on, this is when you put it on, this is what you, etc. In a sense, the book was a handbook. The book was not meant to be a source of research. Came the Jewish people never leave well enough alone. So there came the commentaries to the Shulchan Aruch. Enormous commentaries. So that the Shulchan Aruch became not a handbook. It's not something that a person can pick up and read and decide anything from because of the fact that it is burdened by all of these commentaries. If you look at the page of the Shulchan Aruch, there are six, eight, ten commentaries on every page. And if you really want to know how to deal in halacha, you have to know all of those commentaries. And they have the unfortunate habit of not agreeing with one with another. And, uh, and the research involved and everything so that the Shulchan Aruch became, again, the province of scholars and of super scholars. So... Uh, for instance, in Orachayim, in the laws regarding everyday life, so we have the Mogen Avraham, and we have the Taz, and we have the Be'er Hetev, and we have the Machzis Hashekel, and we have uh, Kiv Eger, and we, by the time you're done with one page, you know, you've, uh, you've been through half of the Talmud. So the Shulchan Aruch no longer became usable to the average Jew. Reb Schneir Zalman is a disciple of the Maggid of Meserich, not of the Baal Shem Tov. Of the Maggid of Meserich. 
Rebdon Berimezerich. Now, he writes in his introduction, I just want to read it to you. Alkain, da'atainu t'ktsora lavo be'arucha be'iyun yam ha'talmud. We no longer have the ability to study the Talmud uh, with with the great analysis. Va'poskim leida motzodin, and to know where the poskim uh, got hold of their uh, why they made these decisions, and therefore he said, my Rebbe. The Magid of Mezerich asked me to write a Shulchan Aruch for people. So to speak, a popular version. But one that would include, and there is the, uh, the uh, uniqueness of this. First of all, the order. Tremendously clear order, not necessarily following the order of the Shulchan Aruch. Secondly, the reason for the halacha, not just what the halacha is, but the reason for it. And then finally, the clear decision as to how to proceed. I'll give you an example. Uh, the halacha is that uh, what if uh, Ruvain comes over to Shimon and he says, you know... I want you to punch me in the mouth. I give you permission to punch me in the mouth. I want you to do it. So if we want to expand it, we say, let's say, uh, Ruvain is a professional boxer. And Shimon is a professional boxer. There's two Jews that are, and they're both Orthodox Jews. There's an Orthodox Jew now in the United States that's a world champion. Russian. Don't ask me how that, you know, who gave him permission, etc. But that's anyway. So, are you allowed to do it? Are you allowed to punch him? So, the uh, Shulchan Harav says, you're not allowed. Why? So, the Shulchan also says, you're not allowed. Okay, and done. Why? Says because he gives you the philosophic reason. A person does not own his own body. Even if somebody gives permission to hit him, you're not allowed to hit him because he has no right to let you. He doesn't own his body, right? And that is his explanation that you don't own your body. If you think about it, so then many other halachas fall into place. It's not yours. Now, that's a machlekas later, you know, the minchas chinuch and... Uh, the Shagasarye, others disagree with him. But he says clearly the rule that you don't... Uh, so it's not just that he said the halacha, he gave you the reason for the halacha. Uh, it says by, uh, 
by Pesach, the Seder. Let's uh, take a practical example. So it says that when you come home from shul, or when you come down to, from the room in the hotel, so you should start the Seder immediately. So, uh, in the Shulchan Aruch it says you should start it so that you can get to the food right away. And so that the children won't fall asleep. So, but he changes that. He says you should start, what it means, you should start the Seder immediately and the children shouldn't fall asleep. Not because by the time you come to the food, the children are all asleep already, he says. That's not the problem. The problem is they should stay awake to ask the four questions. So you got to get there right away. And that's the reason why you have to start the Seder right away. And the, uh, he has many, many ideas such as this. He discusses why uh, the two days of Rosh Hashanah, which everybody discusses, and the Gemara already discusses, two days of Rosh Hashanah. So Shema Yavoa Edim, witnesses will come and they'll say the moon was later and therefore we will have to make it the second day. So the Gemara says, the that the people won't come to treat it lightly. So therefore they made it two days. So Rashi says, means the next year. Next year people will say, listen, they made us wait till the second day last year. We remember that, so we forget about the first day. We'll only keep the second day because we know already from last year how the rabbis do this. He says a different, uh, he says that's not the correct uh, interpretation. He says that what it means, means that since the day Minha Torah could have been Rosh Hashanah, except the rabbis pushed it off. For whatever the rabbis can push off a day in the calendar, for whatever reason. But Minat Torah, the day should have been yesterday. Since Minat Torah, the day should have been, we don't want to cheapen it and say it's not Yontif. So even though the rabbis pushed it to the second day, the first day retains its holiness because of the possibility because it was ro'uy, it was possible that it should be the day of Yontif. And he had many, many examples of that in the Shulchan Aruch Harav, of uh, not just giving the law, but explaining the law, explaining why, and uh, that uh, would go a long way in understanding why that became such a popular book. He, to a certain extent, like the Gon was the father of later things, he's also the father of later things. The Mishnah Brewer, the Orch HaShulchan, oh, the Kitzur Shulchan Aruch, all of that is based upon the fact that he broke this ground. He said, you know, that the, we have to somehow go past the Shulchan Aruch and make a work that's acceptable and understandable to this generation not burdened again with all of the commentaries. However, what has happened in our time, as always happens with the Jewish people, is that the Mishnah Brura became a scholarly work. And now there are commentaries to the Mishnah Brura. 
so that therefore it also, uh, to a certain extent, is no longer the uh, popular book, but it uh, also became the realm of the scholarly. We'll talk about it next week when we talk about the Mishnah Bura and the Archa Shulchan. There are certain innovations in halacha that uh, the Balatanya introduced, some of which have been accepted universally, some of which have remained pretty much with Chabad. Uh, Again, let's stay with Pesach, because that's where in the season. We sell the chometz to the non-Jew. The whole evolution of Mechiras chometz from the time of the Talmud till our time, so let's say the Israeli rabbinate sells all the chomets in Israel to one non-Jew. Well, you got maybe a billion dollars worth of chomets, right? The non-Jew, very hard to find the billionaire that's willing to buy chomets from you. Usually they get, you know, the guy that's the, 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 the guy that cleans up in the office, right? There's somebody, you know, he's the one that they have. I used to have a janitor in Miami Beach when I was the rabbi. And I remember the first year I was the rabbi, I told him, uh, Jules, you know, I need you, heir of Pesach. We're going to sell the chomets. I want you to buy it. And he refused. And I was shocked. And I said, why? He said, my father told me if the Jews are selling, you don't buy. So he's got, he owes a billion dollars. Okay, how can he pay the billion dollars? What happens to make the transaction legal? So today we can understand it in terms of electronic banking. But the Gemara, the, uh, the Chazal had this idea long before Zokfol of Bemilve. We loan him the million dollars, the billion dollars, whatever he needs. Electronically, we transfer it to his account. The only thing is that he owes us the money. And then after Pesach, when he can't pay back the money, so then we say, well, since you can't pay back the money, we're going to buy all of this back from you. If you agree to sell it to us, and he always does, because he doesn't have the money to pay off the loan. That's oversimplified, but that's, that's the procedure. So the, the, he raises the problem... Uh, what do you mean you lend him a billion dollars? Why should you lend him a billion dollars? Where's his credit rating? So therefore he says he needs guarantors, Jewish guarantors that guarantee the loan. An Orif Koblen. And usually the Orif Koblen used to be uh, the most substantial person in town. And that therefore we're lending the money to the non-Jew, but we're doing it with a security that what? That the Orev Kablan, that the guarantor, stands behind the loan. So that lends a greater legitimacy to the sale. But a custom here in Jerusalem, the custom in many places in the world is to use an Orev Kablan. Aside from uh, the, the loan to the non-Jew, we have a Jew that becomes... The guarantor. So that's an innovation of, in halacha of the, of the Balatanya.
JM in the AM. We'll get to more of the Vilna going in the Balatanya with uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine here at JM in the AM as uh, we'll conclude this lecture coming up. Getting closer and closer to Tisha B'Av, a reminder about a couple of things. Um, the bake sale to support the Lone Soldier Center. The Lone Center provides physical and emotional support for Lone Soldiers in Israel, especially now that many are coming back from active duty. Uh, the bake sale to support the Lone Soldier Center in memory of Shlomo Ridenau, uh, a lone soldier you'll recall from Passaic, New Jersey, who was uh, unfortunately killed in an accident um, at the age of 20 just a couple of weeks ago. The bake sale happens at Breezy's, 572 Central Avenue. It happens today between 10 a.m. and 8 p.m. and Friday, tomorrow from 10 a.m. until 1 p.m. So the bake sale in support of the Lone Soldier Center happens at Breezy's, 572 Central Avenue, Dad in Cedarhurst. Uh, today, 10 to 8. Tomorrow, 10 until 1. Project Inspires, we've been telling you, has their 50-minute film presentation called The Formula. Plus, they're going to be presenting Charlie Harari in the last couple of hours of Tisha B'Av on Sunday. Uh, you can go to the Project Inspire website to get information about that. Sunday, a mincha service at the Isaiah Peace Wall for Israel and endangered Jews worldwide. That happens uh, this coming Sunday, Tisha B'Av, starting at uh, 2 p.m. Bring your towels and fill in 43rd Street, 1st Avenue in New York City, across from the U.N. That is the annual tradition in Manhattan. The Tisha B'Av Kumzitz, Cantor Benny Rogoznitsky on uh, Tisha B'Av night, will lead a kumzit starting at 10 p.m. at the Parky Synagogue on East 68th Street in New York. Cantor Benny Rogoznitsky, accompanied by Chilu Posen and the Mazamrim Choir. Go to parkysynagogue.org, parkysynagogue.org. It starts 10 p.m. this coming Saturday night after Echa. Again, that starts at 10 p.m. on Leil Tishabov. And remember that um, you can unite this Tishabov with over 50,000 Jews and over 700 gatherings around the world at the Chavetz Chaim Heritage Foundation. This year's Tishabov Worldwide event is called Opening the Door. This year's presentation is sponsored by Debbie and Elliot Gibber and family, featuring many incredible Torah personalities, including Rav Shmuel Kamenetsky, Rav Yitzchak David Grossman, Rav Yitzchak Friend, Rav Pesach Krohn, Rav Warren Goldstein, Rav Y.Y. Jacobson. The website is powerofspeech.org to find a location in your neighborhood. Powerofspeech.org. You log on. It's called Opening the Door. It is for Tisha B'Av 5776. It's Opening the Door. Powerofspeech.org. Powerofspeech.org. We'll conclude our lecture from Rabbi Beryl Wine on the Balatanya and the Vilna Gon. Uh, halachic disputes in Jewish history. And... Uh, Start wrapping things up for a Thursday morning broadcast here in our nine days format at JM in the AM. Last year, we remember that, so we forget about the first day. We'll only keep the second day because we know already from last year how the rabbis do this. He says a different, uh, he says that's not the correct uh, interpretation. He says that what he means, means that since the day Min HaTorah could have been Rosh Hashanah, except the rabbis pushed it off, for whatever the rabbis can push off a day in the calendar, for whatever reason. But Min HaTorah, the day should have been yesterday, 
since Minatora the day should have been, we don't want to cheapen it and say it's not Yontif. So even though the rabbis pushed it to the second day, the first day retains its holiness because of the possibility, because it was Ro'uy, it was possible that it should be the day of Yontif. And he has many, many examples of that in the Shulchan Archerav, of uh, not just giving the law, but explaining the law. Explaining why, and uh, that uh, would go a long way in understanding why that became such a popular book. He, to a certain extent, like the Gon was the father of later things, He's also the father of later things. The Mishnah Brewer, the Orach HaShulchan, oh, the Kitzur Shulchan Orach, all of that is based upon the fact that he broke this ground. He said, you know, that the, we have to somehow go past the Shulchan Orach and make a work that's acceptable and understandable to this generation, not burdened again with all of the commentaries. However, what has happened in our time, as always happens with the Jewish people, is that the Mishnah Brewer became a scholarly work. And now there are commentaries to the Mishnah Brewer. So that therefore it also, uh, to a certain extent, is no longer the uh, popular book, but it uh, also became the realm of the scholarly. We'll talk about it next week when we talk about the Mishnah Brewer and the Orch HaShulchan. There are certain innovations in Halacha that uh, the Balatanya introduced, with some of which have been accepted universally, some of which have remained pretty much with Chabad. Uh, again, let's stay with Pesach, because that's where in the season. We sell the Chomets to the non-Jew. The whole evolution of Mechiras Chometz from the time of the Talmud till our time. So let's say the Israeli rabbinate sells all the Chometz in Israel to one non-Jew. Well, you got maybe a billion dollars worth of Chometz, right? The non-Jew, very hard to find the billionaire that's willing to buy Chometz from you. Usually they get, you know, the guy that's uh, the, the the guy that cleans up in the office, right? There's somebody, you know, he's the one that they have. I used to have a janitor in Miami Beach when I was the rabbi. And I remember the first year I was the rabbi, I told him, Jules, you know, I need you, of Pesach, we're going to sell the chomets, I want you to buy it. And he refused. And I was shocked, and I said, why? He said, my father told me if the Jews are selling, you don't buy. <laughs> so he's got, he owes a billion dollars. Okay, how can he pay the billion dollars? What happens to make the transaction legal? So today we can understand it in terms of electronic banking. But the Gemara, the, uh, the Chazal had this idea long before Zokfol of Bemilve. We loan him the million dollars, the billion dollars, whatever he needs. Electronically, we transfer it to his account. The only thing is that he owes us the money. 
And then after Pesach, when he can't pay back the money, so then we say, well, since you can't pay back the money, we're going to buy all of this back from you. If you agree to sell it to us, and he always does, because he doesn't have the money to pay off the loan. That's oversimplified, but that's, that's the procedure. So the, he raises the problem, uh, what do you mean you lend him a billion dollars? Why should you lend him a billion dollars? Where's his credit rating? So therefore, he says he needs guarantors, Jewish guarantors that guarantee the loan, an Orev Kablan. And usually the Orev Kablan used to be uh, the most substantial person in town. And that therefore, we're lending the money to the non-Jew, but we're doing it with a security that what? That the Orev Kablan, that the guarantor stands behind the loan. So that lends a greater legitimacy to the sale. But a custom here in Jerusalem, the custom in many places in the world, is to use an Orev Kablam. Aside from uh, the, the loan to the non-Jew, we have a Jew that becomes the guarantor. So that's an innovation of in halacha of the, of the Balatanya, of Reb Schneir Zalman, that's been accepted. He has also the question of whether in a mikveh, so a mikveh has the bathing pool, but it has, the, the, the bathing pool always is city water. It's not kosher water. But it's attached to a real mikveh, which is rainwater or spring water. And uh, through uh, the opening of a conduit between the two, between the bathing pool and between the real mikveh, the waters touch, the word that is used is kiss, and therefore the water in the bathing pool also becomes kosher water, so to speak. That's how, again, vast oversimplification of how the mikveh works. So, he always claimed that there has to be this, the real mikveh has to be under the bathing pool. In other words, it's, it's vertical. And most of the world holds that it is on the side. So that remains today an issue uh, all over the world. The, the Chabad insists that mikvos be on the bottom, and the uh, rest of the world has the mikveh on the side. And in many communities that causes uh, rifts and problems. But uh, that was uh, his innovation. That's what he required. He uh, also, as the Gon, uh, he followed the idea that uh, there should be no piyutim. The Gon took away all the piyutim so that, uh, for instance, uh, we in, in our modern uh, prayer service, even our Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, say very few extra prayers. Whereas uh, the Jews in the 16th century and the 17th century had pages and pages and pages of extra piyutim. There were piyutim for, uh, for, for every Sabbath even, and especially for the four special parshas. The Gaon did away with all of that. The Balatanya also did away with it. The Balatanya also doesn't say Vishomru. The Balatanya took Nusachari, 
which is a Kabbalistic Nusach, and he made that in the Nusach of Tefillah, uh, and it remains today amongst the Chabad Chusidim as being its Nusach, because it, it, it was Kabbalistically oriented. Uh, the Balatanya is a great expert in Kabbalah, then he is a Kabbalist, whereas the Gon wasn't a Kabbalist, but was an expert in Kabbalah. There's a difference between the two. There arose a great uh, dispute on uh, the knives that were used for by the ritual slaughterers, by the shochtim. In the uh, 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century, uh, steel came into being. Until then, all of the knives were made from iron. Now, the knife of a shochet has to be at one and the same time sharp and smooth. Well, that's a hard combination to achieve. Because if you make it sharp, usually it's not very smooth. They're, they're, it's rough. And if you make it smooth, then it's pretty dull. And this was a problem that always existed uh, regarding these iron knives. When the steel knives came in to being, so now you were much, able, much more able to produce a knife that was uh, both smooth and sharp. And the chassidim adopted it. Now, yeah, I've mentioned many times before that chassidim in its earliest form was the most uh, open to technological and the uh, different things it was not conservative, it was radical in many respects. So they used these types of polished knives, they called them. And the Misnagdim opposed them on it, opposed them greatly on it. It was one of the, uh, one of the things that was mentioned in the Cherem against the, the Chassidim. So uh, he uh, defended the uh, use of these knives. Not only he defended it, he said uh, that uh, he heard from Reb Chaim Valozhin. He didn't speak to him, he said, but he heard from Reb Chaim Valozhin. And Reb Chaim Valozhin says that the Gon also said that the knives are good, but that they opposed it because of the other things in Chesidus. They didn't want to do anything that Chesidim did. And that that's why they opposed it. My thanks to Rabbi Beryl Wine, whose lectures are available at 1-800-499-WEIN and RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. He has been the uh, basis of our nine days spoken word programming here at JM&M, and I thank him. Tomorrow, weekly update starts at 7.40 Eastern Time. Make sure to join us as Malcolm Holmline will be uh, with us here at JM and the AM, and uh, we'll discuss the events of this week. Uh, during our weekly update, make sure to be tuned in again, 7.40 Eastern Time, through all of our listening options, and of course, through the NSN app as well. Or I should say that includes the NSN app. And um, a reminder that our uh, regular format will uh, kick back in on Monday morning, starting at 6 a.m. Uh, Matis will present a JM Sunday, this coming Sunday, starting at 7 a.m., appropriate for Tishabov this coming Sunday morning. Brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard a listener sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, 
Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial, broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. Around the world on the web, jmnam.org, and of course on the NSN app. And we will speak with you tomorrow morning, conduct the weekly update, and um, do as much of a regular Friday program as we can here at JM and the AM tomorrow. Have a fabulous Thursday. Till tomorrow, it's Malcolm Siegel reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.